You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 413. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Chap, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 20th of February, 2020. episode, United Airlines is starting its own flight school because of the pilot shortage. A two-year sentence for a passenger who tried to open a plane door mid-flight. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, Buckeye 2. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 413 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger, a real-life radio professional in the New York City market. Emmy award-winning, by the way. And I'm Captain Jeff, a an airline captain and a former U.S. Air Force pilot, uh, doing a podcast where we talk about aviation news and answering your great feedback. And let's see, I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia, and we like to call the airline for which I fly and Dana flies, Acme Airlines. And joining me today from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter, pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. This is a lovely start time. It's very kind of you to put it on at such a reasonable hour for those of us here in Blighty. And um, yeah, looking for a great show. All right. Well, we're, we're happy to... Make it more convenient for you today. And also joining us from the Northwest Atlanta suburbs, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and so much more. And last but not least, captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Gentlemen, good afternoon, good evening. Great to be here. I've got to leave right now because I'm going out in my backyard. I'm building an ark. We have just got that much rain here in Atlanta that I'm building an arc. I think the floods are coming. Yeah, it's uh, we've been getting but, a lot of rain. But in the meantime, I want to stay here and have a fun time on the show. There you go. That's more important. All right. Thank you, Dana. And let's get on with the news. Stand by for news. All right. The first item in our news folder is one that Dana is going to take. Go ahead, Dana. 
And United Airlines has announced that they're going to purchase and operate its own flight training academy, giving a new way to recruit potential pilots. It will be the only major U.S. airline to run its own flight school, and this will help to United combat the global pilot shortage and will offer candidates a pipeline to a highly sought job at a mainland line carrier. It's pretty interesting. It's kind of an ab initio program that they're starting. They've uh, purchased a, a school over there in Phoenix, Arizona, um, and they're going to pretty much bring uh, on students from zero hours where they'll be uh, – trained all the way up until they're eligible to go to one of their regional partners, build their experience there, which is still very consistent with um, what we've been doing all along. The only difference is uh, in the the United States and trying to get into the major airlines is uh, you've been paying for it or they students have been paying for it on their own. Now, you, this is not a free ride uh, that's being provided by United. Uh, what it is, is an opportunity that they're pretty much going to interview you, bring you in into the program and offer you financial aid uh, with preferential financial institutions uh, to uh, qualified individuals and bring them up and, and you know, help them uh, eventually. I don't think it says here, I haven't read it, it says that they're going to re- reimburse, but certainly uh, gives you a guarantee, pretty much a guarantee. Uh, slot all the way up into into mainline carrier uh, at United. So I, I'm actually kind of excited about this because this is a uh, you know it, it, it's hard to for students that are uh, you know trying to build their time or, or, or really interested to go ahead and uh, get into the into the, the business. And so you know typical training costs run run you know in between ninety hundred you know ninety to hundred and twenty hundred thirty thousand dollars. Uh, in training, depending on you know how good and how fast you get through the programs, so um, looks like they're looking at about 300 students per year. To start with the with plans to grow to another 500 students. So they're trying to combat the uh, the upcoming pilot shortage. Yeah, exciting. I think that um, it won't be the last major airline here in the U.S. to do the same sort of thing as the uh, shortage continues and it gets tougher and tougher for them to find qualified candidates to fly these airplanes and because you know what these airplanes aren't flying themselves anytime soon no if ever and, and you know the, in, in the main line you know the, the the major carriers you know the uh the deltas the united the americans the fedex Fed, you know southwest all those all, all those carriers probably at the main line level will not feel the impact because that's the, the desirable place to be but with you know what they're trying to combat really here i think jeff and is that they're trying to combat the uh, regional uh, level which is you know hard hard to build that experience and and you know, there's not a whole lot of options out there uh, if you're if you're struggling to get through. Um, and they're offering the program as a brand new, you know, zero time pilot. So you know, there there there's some real incentive here uh, for people that have been thinking about uh, doing this. And, you know, I wish I was, you know, 20, 30 years younger. It would be really exciting because it's completely it's a complete opposite end of the spectrum from when when I was growing up trying to get into the aviation business. You had to beg, borrow, and steal just to just to fly. You know, um, well, I was going to say something out of Hong Kong, but uh, you know, just to just to get billed an hour. You know, it 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 was it was very much different world than it is today. So I'm excited for all the new new people that are coming into the business. You know, it wasn't that long ago, maybe a couple of years ago or more, maybe three uh, that. JetBlue started up some kind of a new program very much like this, um, and I'm not sure if it was successful because I haven't heard anything 
about it in quite some time. In fact, one of the uh, APG community members um, ha- got a spot in the program. And if you're listening, I, I forget your name. I- I'm sorry. Uh, if you're listening, uh, please contact us and send us some feedback and let us know exactly how that went or if if it's uh, still running. Uh, and uh, again, I'm I'm not sure. Would you? It's JetBlue is not really considered a legacy um, major carrier, but they are definitely in their own right major carrier here in the U.S. They're considered a national carrier, along yeah. with the um, somebody like Spirit, um, Allegiant. It's not quite as big, but Frontier. Right. Uh, Alaska is considered a national, I believe. So, and you know what? It's, it's I, I, have, I have a feeling that um, if it, it gets tougher and tougher for the majors to find qualified candidates to fly these airplanes, that uh, I, I don't see it far fetched that at some point they say, basically, you don't have to pay us a thing. We'll we'll take up the costs because sure. we need you that badly. Sure. So yeah, that, those that. are the questions that I think anyone looking to enter a system like that needs to ask, and they they need to ask a, a few like, um, how much is this going to cost me if I fail my training? Uh, how much am I going to have to pay back? And um, is the company going to uh, contractually oblige me to stay employed to them? If so, for how much and on what wage scale? So you have to kind of add those things up before you just plow headfirst into a deal like this because you could end up out of pocket big time without realizing or tied to an airline um, which is going to pay you a, a much lower wage than your compatriots who are already working there for many years to come. So those are the kind of details that you need to take a look at. Now, Logan in our chat room, um, in the Facebook chat room, is saying that uh, he looked into JetBlue's program and it was like $100,000 and most of it had to be paid paid back fairly quickly, if he remembers correctly. And then he also makes mention of the fact that Republic Airways has a school like this in Indiana. I think it's called Lyft. And in fact, one of our APG community members, Louisiana Steve, I've met up with him a few times in Indianapolis, which is where they have this Lyft Academy. I think it's called Lyft, uh, the, uh, the Republic program. And hey, I haven't heard from you in a while, Louisiana Steve. I'm wondering how things are going. Uh, let us know. Send us some feedback. Uh, I'd like to hear how that's going with for you. So, so when you qualify, you, you call the lift operator? Yes. Well, see, that's okay. not so funny here because we call them elevators. Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah. Damn. Stupid yanks, well, right? People understand. <laughs> yeah. I knew what you meant, though. <laughs> I thought it was well, you're, funny. You're getting very good. You're kind of getting mid I know. I'm, I'm your, your, uh, the opposite of anglicizing. Or is it anglicizing? It is anglicizing. Okay. Yeah, it's very good. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm slowly um, uh, working my way towards that. Um, but um, anyway, what was I going to play? I was going to play a sound effect. Uh, oh, that was that was pretty pretty funny, Nick. <laughs> is that is that that mad person you keep in your basement? <laughs> that is actually uh, from the days uh, when I did the uh, program Catholic Weekend. Uh, this is a priest named Father Kyle, and he has just the greatest laugh in the world. And I <laughs> uh, I, I have a couple so- of laugh clips from him uh, laughing like that. So. Um, and you just, you can't help but laughing when you hear him laugh like that, I think. Absolutely. All right. Um, well, thanks, Dana. Anything else uh, to add before we move on to the next item? Nope. I'm, I'm good. Uh, I think we did a great job with that. Thanks. All right. All right. Uh, item B, 
Air traffic controllers honored for saving F-16 pilot. Uh, this is in uh, Dateline, uh, Nashua, New Hampshire, February 6th from CBS. Uh, three air traffic controllers who helped save an F-16 pilot were honored by New Hampshire Senator Gene Shaheen on Thursday. Jeff Albach, Neil Cospito, and Michael Jacobson were on duty at the Boston Air Route Traffic Control Center on November 20th, 2018, when a normal shift turned dangerous. It was not a good day, said Lieutenant Colonel Nate Smith of the Vermont Air National Guard, who was trying to land the F-16 at his base in Burlington, Vermont. My fuel state was at a point where I could probably pull it off, but I was going to be in a bind. In fact, he had only about 15 minutes of fuel left, but unexpected nasty weather hit, blocking the landing. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Smith contacted Boston Center, and uh, the controllers redirected him to Syracuse, but he realized that um, without more fuel, he probably wouldn't make it to Syracuse. And that's when the air traffic controllers' cool heads prevailed. They said, they've, uh, we've got a tanker about 80 miles off your nose. Do you want to receive gas? And I was like, well, I had Mexican last night and I uh, already have a lot too much. For my No, he didn't say that. Uh, he said, yeah. <laughs> Good response. Uh, the tanker was a KC-135 and they connected for a mid-air refueling. Uh, the Boston Center crew saved the day with essentially thinking outside the box, Lieutenant Colonel Smith said. Uh, Senator uh, Shaheen presented the controllers with a congressional record statement to recognize their heroics. And then uh, one of the ATC control or the air traffic controllers, Neil Cospito, said, this is what we're trained to do. We don't do it for recognition. We do it because we want to help and we want to keep people safe. And the other controller said there was a lot of luck involved. What are the chances that we had a tanker just hanging out there? So, yeah, it was uh, good timing. Very Absolutely. Uh, and it's, it comes from just doing your job and knowing what assets you've got around you and then going, hang on a minute. Two and two together. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to Moscow's International Time Airport, thank you very much. That I was, would be a bit too far to go. I was moving the window around and it accidentally tripped. Up, so. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, no, I will not remove that in post. That'll stay in. That's funny. Yeah. I'm sorry, so Nick. Well I didn't done, mean guys. to interrupt yeah, you. Well okay. Uh, item C. Oh, let's see. I have to uh, find something to play. Uh, let's see. Where is it? Here we go. Oh, yeah. Bad boys and girls. Bad girls. Okay, this is a story uh, from the BBC News, bbc.com. A woman who tried to open a passenger plane door mid-flight, prompting two fighter jets to be scrambled, has been jailed for two years. Her name's Chloe Haynes, 26 years old, from High Wycombe? Is that how High you... High Wycombe. High Wycombe. Dang it. I had a 50% Close. chance on that one. Yeah. You're only halfway across the Atlantic. Don't yeah. forget. Okay. Um, scratched a crew member as she lunged at the door, shouting, I'm going to kill you all. Two RAF fighter jets rushed to escort the plane back to Stansted, causing a sonic boom across Essex. Haynes, who admitted to two charges, was sentenced at Chelmsford Crown Court. Or is it Chelmsford? Chelmsford. Ah, shoot. <laughs> I guess I need to go back and look at that uh, video. 
<laughs> she she pleaded guilty to endangering the safety of a passenger plane and assault by beating. The incident took place on a Jet 2 flight with 206 people aboard heading to Dalaman in Turkey on the 22nd of June last year. Um, she blacked out and didn't really know what happened. Uh, she was mixing alcohol with medication. And uh, let's see, the uh, cabin crew member Charlie Coombe suffered scratches as she tried to prevent Haynes from opening the plane door. A passenger later told police he really feared she would open the door. Uh, she was yelling, the crazy lady, I want to die and I'm going to kill you all to the crew and passengers attempting to restrain her. And this is the best part, I think, of this article from the BBC. And like, you know, I give you, you know, bravo uh, for including this in the story. The court heard it was impossible to open an exit door mid-flight, but many passengers would not have known this. <laughs> many journalists don't know that either. So yeah. thank you for putting that in there. Um, that's good. As we said, if you have that pressurization going, um, yeah, it's impossible to open up that door. If you're taxiing along the ground, though, it's very easy to open the door. So yeah. if someone tries it then or in the takeoff roll, can you kindly stop them? Yeah, and then I guess it depends on the airplane on Dana and my jet. Um, on the takeoff roll, you won't be able to open it either, but taxiing you will. Because our airplane does actually put a little bit of uh, pressurization on uh, just to prevent the doors from coming open. Ah, right. Um, let's see. This is Mr. what... Mr. Crimp added. Yeah, that's kind of odd it said he added that the raf jets were sent in error do you understand do you know what he means by that uh, nick well the only thing i can think is that um they what's the what's an escorting jet gonna do uh, well the only real option is to shoot down the airliner right um and was this a situation where the crew had been unable to communicate the fact that they were safe and just returning to Stansted, that the cockpit was still a secure environment and there was no concern. Um, so someone might have jumped the gun on that is the only thing I'm thinking. Ah, okay. So maybe they thought it was a more serious situation, like a terrorist act or something. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, someone trying to take over the aircraft. Um, and, of course, coming from where the um, uh, the, the Typhoons will be based in probably Coningsby, uh, to get down to London uh, requires an overland flight. And if they're going to get down there in time, they are going to break the speed of sound overland, which, of course, some people might have been excited about hearing a sonic boom. Boom, boom. I would be excited about hearing a sonic boom. Yeah, until your windows cave Exactly, in. unless it breaks my windows. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and the sound of breaking glass. Um, I wonder if anybody in our crew has heard that sound recently. In yep, that <laughs> <laughs> had nothing to do with the sonic boom, nothing whatsoever. Yeah, there was a sonic boom, it just wasn't that type of sonic. Boom. <laughs> okay, uh, let's see. Um, so anyway, she has been uh, had been diagnosed with mental ill health. Oh, since the incident, they diagnosed her with mental mental ill health and had not, not touched alcohol since 22nd of June. Uh, she wasn't just drunk; she was unwell. He said. Now is that is that the uh, sound effects of your um, master bedroom being worked on? <laughs> master what? <laughs> master bathroom. Yeah. I keep hearing some you hear, you can hear noises. Back, huh? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to keep the mic muted. Then. Okay. <laughs> Unless I have to say something, I'm just going to be ready with the mic. Oh, you can Sorry. keep it muted even even if you have to say something. 
No, I'm just kidding. Uh, let's see. So she was jailed for two years for this offense, by the looks of it, which is quite a lot of time. If she genuinely had a mental illness, I'm not too sure if that's entirely appropriate. Right. But uh, she had been given a community order for something similar uh, involving al- alcohol and loss of control only 17 days before this incident. So I think the court were probably obliged to give her something more serious than a uh, slap on the wrist. Right. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Wow, that was kind of a stiff fine for mm. for you know if she really truly is mentally ill. But then, as you said, <laughs> the uh, very recently another similar uh, offense. So yeah, there, there's there, I think there are levels of mental illness, and if you uh, have the freedom to uh, interact and be fully uh, uh, at your own cognizance in society, then there is still a responsibility on you to behave properly and within the law um 86 pounds uh, jet to reckoned it cost them that's quite a lot it is yeah quite i mean i've heard quotes uh of the cost of a diversion on an international flight not reaching that kind of number that's uh, interesting no, I don't know whether that includes all the potential fines that they can have from a european operator on mm-hmm. a european operator could be maybe even the court costs because uh, I'm sure that they probably had to be re- yep. representing the airline in the in the yep. court proceedings. Plus, effectively having to restart the flight, refuel, replan, yeah. do everything. Major inconvenience for sure. Yeah. All right, uh, Nick, you want to take this next one? Sure. Uh, this is uh, a passenger plane that was almost shot down over Syria, uh, and this. Um, International Ops 2019 Ops Group. Uh, I think they're the outfit that let us know. Um, Dave Munford wrote the article. So it was the early hours of February of the 6th, and it was a commercial flight from Damascus to uh, Russia-controlled uh, Kenimim, Kenimimi. Well, so when you have a consonant like K H M all together, what do you do with that? K H M yeah, air base after coming under fire from Syrian air defenses. So the Cham Wings A three twenty. I'd never heard of Cham Wings before. There are amazing number of airlines out there now. One hundred and seventy two people on board, flying from. O-R-N-I, which is Nayaf, to uh, O-S-D-I, Damascus, when the incident took place. And this is according to the New York Times. So well, that's who uh, David Mumford works for, apparently. No, actually, um, he so works it, for the ops group. Um, but oh, they, they must have gotten the story from the New York Times. Ah, okay. That sounds good. Syrian Air Defenses directed anti-aircraft gun and missile fire against the Airbus, but failed to hit it. So... Uh, you know, you do wonder um, either their aim is pretty bad or hopefully the aircraft was reasonably high, uh, but it's not going to be a hard target. Um, Russia's Ministry of Defense has since blamed Israel for the near miss. Well, I don't think Israel pulled the trigger. Um, at the time of the incident, though, Syrian air defense systems had engaged four Israeli F-16s, and Russians claimed that these fighter jets were using civilian aircraft as cover while conducting airstrikes. Now, it's very interesting, isn't it? I do remember 
um, being over in Kuwait on a visit, and I was chatting to a Kuwait Airways captain who flew 707s and was telling me in, a, in an earlier career, part of his career, he'd been flying a 707 uh, towards Egypt, and uh, as he approached the airfield, from under his wings, uh, Israeli phantom jets emerged and bombed the airport in front of him, uh, which I thought was an incredible story. Um, and it's not unheard of for uh, fighter aircraft to use the uh, a civilian aircraft to conceal their identity because they can h hide behind them, use their score, use their radar signature to disguise themselves. Now, whether the uh, that was the case in this instance, I don't know. So, but Russia uh, believe that they did it. Uh, Russia I would be surprised a, if that's exactly what they were doing. Yeah. Um, so they've accused them anyway, uh, and they said uh, they uh, have put commercial flights uh, like this at risk in the past by timing their airstrikes on Syria too close to flights arriving at Beirut and Damascus. So you're obviously in a tense piece of airspace uh, and, you know, things are going to happen. So not good. In the past few months, though, there have been a number of airstrikes by Israel against military targets in Syria, including Damascus Airport, uh, with the Syrian government firing its own missiles over Syrian airspace and along the Lebanese border to repel the attacks. So it's obviously a difficult piece of airspace, but when you get a third party like this um, A320, 172 innocent people on board getting uh, involved in this kind of thing, that's when uh, it, you, it, you, know, you really worry. And they say it's the latest incident uh, for this to happen because, of course, uh, there was a Ukraine International Airlines passenger plane shot down shortly after takeoff from Tehran, killing all 176 on board. Um, and that was only a month ago. But I had a quick look in uh, Wikipedia at uh, the aircraft, civilian aircraft that have been shot down in the in the past, and there are an awful lot of them. Uh, other than that, Ukraine International Airlines flight in uh, 2014, of course, we'll remember the Malaysian Airlines 777 flight 17 that was shot down um, by a Soviet-made uh, buck surface-to-air missile. Um, 2007, uh, in Mogadishu, uh, an IL-76 crashed. Um, there was another one in 2007. 2003, the Baghdad DHL flight, which I talked about, hit by a missile. Uh, Siberian Airlines flight in uh, 2001 uh, in Peru. There was a shoot-down of a Cessna float plane in 2001. There was the Lion Air flight in uh, 1998, and it just goes on and on and on, all the way back to um, the 1930s, which was the first time a civilian airliner was uh, engaged, and this was during the Second Sino-Japanese War. So mm. it's been going a long time, and while conflicts exist and and uh, the systems uh, that the military have aren't perfect about identifying friendlies from enemies, and we know even the most sophisticated uh, and well-trained uh, countries can uh, make this kind of mistake, that you're, you know, you're really um, got to be careful when you're flying around this type of airspace. For sure. And if you're flying, you know, intra Syria, uh, I would imagine that pretty much every single flight is going to, there's going to be some risk of 
of getting in someone's way, right? Yeah, it's another piece of airspace I'd be very interested in flying yeah. over. Yeah. Well, if you had one of these drone defense systems, oh wait, that's a drone. That's not going to well, help. Well, uh, in, in your fighter, you wouldn't have minded flying that airspace back in the day. Oh yeah, yeah. I, uh, we used to fly very nice. close to that airspace out of Cyprus, which. Uh, uh, was mentioned in this article. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but then again, I think if you're uh, flying a, 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 an aircraft uh, from the military, you have a much better understanding of the threat from your intelligence uh, outfits. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you know the risks, so you can sure. make a judgment. But, uh, of course, we rely, uh, as airline pilots, on our governments to advise us which countries are safe to fly over and which aren't. And if you're going to operate in a country right in the middle of the Middle East, you're going to have to take a certain level of risk. Dana, thanks for just destroying my wonderful segue to the next <laughs> news item. <laughs> my pleasure. So I'll try it again. But if you had a drone defense system, looks like Ahmad Don Amadou in Africa sent us this uh, looks like kind of a, an advertisement or advertisement or however you want to pronounce that word of a system uh, called Drone Dome C-UAS. And this is, the article is from Raphael co.il i believe if i can focus my eyes i think that's what it says yeah um, Raphael. so presumably an israeli um, outfit well detection neutralization and interception system Raphael Raphael's drone dome counter unmanned aircraft systems is a powerful off the shelf end to end solution that secures airspace against hostile drones what i should do is This week's show is brought to you by Drone Dome. Detection, neutralization, and interception system. How's that? Pretty good. Now you know, just have something go bang and the noise stop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do I have something like that? Hmm. I don't know. No, that's you not a bang. You might do that in post. <laughs> <laughs> How about this? A Around banana, one. A banana slap. There you go. <laughs> So okay. apparently this system was used at Gatwick Airport. Remember, they had a lot oh, yeah. of disruption a couple of years ago. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And uh, also at the uh, G20 uh, Buenos Aires Summit um, the same year, uh, or yeah, two years ago, and also the Summer Youth Olympics in Buenos Aires. So I think the South Americans have decided it's a good system for them to use. Um, seems to include a combination of um, radio jamming and laser, powerful lasers Ooh. to uh, kill <laughs> the drones. Trying to make the the yeah. Jedi um, that sound sword, sword, yeah. yeah, very good. It can detect targets as small as point zero zero two meters square. Have no idea what how big that is. So not a, quite as not quite as good as I thought because I was hoping it would kill mosquitoes and flies and things. Nah, I don't think so. No. Well, that would be nice, yeah. wouldn't it? It would. Right? Have a be little fly zapper in your garden. A little overkill for your zap. backyard. <laughs> 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 All right. Yeah. Well, anyway, well, thanks for sending in the uh, ad for Drone Dome, but I guess they have the technology out there now to take care of these things and provide reasonable protection for, uh, you know, a defense against these uh, unmanned drones. Yeah. 
Uh, hope you're doing all right over there uh, in Nigeria, Dan, or Ahmad Dan, Hamidou. Hamidou, I think I'm saying that right. All right. Um, Delta, a very similar airline to the one that Dana and I fly for, um, sometimes we consider it our sister carrier. Apparently, they had a really, really good year uh, as far as profits are concerned, and uh, they paid out a record-breaking amount of profit-sharing money to their 90,000 employees, $1.6 billion worth, actually, and which ended up being 16.7% of their annual pay from, the, from 2019. And uh, in uh, part of, as part of that, as part of the thank you, they uh, painted up one of their Airbus A321s with the uh, livery, um, a special livery, uh, saying thank you, painted on both sides of the aircraft, 45,000 names on one side and 45,000 names on the other. And uh, anyway, so that, I think that was pretty cool. To, so every employee of the company working in 2019, um, their name was actually on that airplane. That's pretty cool. Have you seen your name yet? Oh, no, not your airline. I wouldn't, no. yeah. Well, if if I happened to work there. for that airline, I, I'm sure I would see it. Yeah. <laughs> I would have seen the profit sharing, too. Yes, I would have. Yes. Yeah, that's a shame you didn't get that. Yeah, I'm very, very envious. Yes. Yeah, I'm not surprised. All right. Very sad day for us at Acme. Yeah. Oh, well. We it would have cost quite a lot to put that on. Mm-hmm. Would, what would you have rather had? A little bit extra cash or an airplane floating around with a special paint job? Well, I imagine if you, if you took the amount of money it cost to do it and then you divide it by, divided it by 90000 it probably would work out to be about a buck fifty. So I'm not sure I would have. Oh, well, they, what they could have done was take this, say, look, well, we're going to do this, but instead we'll have a raffle. And one employee is going to get the value of this paint job, which would be quite a nice gift. It would be. It would be. Or a cup of coffee from Starbucks, you know, either one. Yeah. Yeah. Not to drink coffee. All right. And finally, in the news items, uh, we have this uh, item G, an accident in India A321 uh, at a city that um, Nick is going to pronounce for us. Am I? Are you yeah. sure about that? P-U-N-E. Well, How would you pronounce that? Pune? Uh, very, very punny. Punny? Ah. Oh. Yeah, very, very punny <laughs> place. Um, it looks like Poon, doesn't it? Yeah, it does look like Poon. Yeah. So this is by Simon uh, Radecki, um, who does that wonderful um, Aviation Herald a website. And uh, he said, in Air India, Airbus A321-200 uh, registration VT uh, PPU, uh, which doesn't stand for PPU. Professional Pilots Union. Oh, no. Uh, performing flight uh, AL852 from Pune to Delhi with 180 people on board was accelerating for takeoff da, 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 on runway 10 when the crew spotted a jeep and a person on the runway. Staff. And the driver of the Jeep was a, uh, yeah, uh, had the top down. Uh, she was driving topless across the <laughs> runway, and she was a doctor, and she was just saying, I'm just heading off to go skiing. Got lost. <laughs> At a conference. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so uh, not funny, actually, when you're doing about uh, um, 
well, you're getting very close. You're past 100 knots, and there's only a high-speed abort option left, and this Jeep's going to be in your way regardless. They they rotated prematurely, so they calculated a rotation speed to lift the nose wheel off and then allow the airplane to climb away. But at 130 knots, they rotated prematurely, so earlier than normal. And I think it's actually this is quite a clever move. It's not something I think any pilot should do pardon me, unless the circumstances are dire. And if they had a potential collision, then that's pretty dire. But uh, we know that when they um, do tests on prototype uh, airliners, they'll do a minimum unstick uh, performance uh, um, flight where they will uh, rotate the aircraft very early and they will basically drag the tail along the ground and work out the earliest possible speed at which they can get the aircraft off the runway, uh, and it, that becomes then uh, minimum on stick speed. And uh, the airplane isn't normally supposed to fly like that, but it will fly, and if you need to get everyone in the shortest possible distance, then that's the way to do it. Now, for those aircraft, when they're doing trials, who have got special plates or skids or big wooden blocks attached to the tail of the aircraft so that they won't do any damage because this airliner scraped its tail along the ground, um, and it's not designed to do that. So it's worn uh, a big spot. Now, not as badly as that other machine we saw last week, which nope. ripped open the whole of the back end of the airplane doing something similar. Mm-hmm. This has just scraped some paint. But uh, I think the, the crew actually did quite a good job. They Obviously, the tail contacted the runway surface, but they climbed out safely. Uh, but then, interestingly, oh, so let's stop. Use- oh, let me stop you. So at this yeah. point, um, you know, let's grade them um, out of like a, a, B, C, D, F. I think I would give them an A or maybe even an A plus for avoiding the Jeep and getting oh, yeah, the airport. Absolutely. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah. what are you writing down? You know, I would reckon I would agree with, with, with Jeff on that one. I mean, you, you're in a, uh, a critical situation and uh, use every resource that you have and probably max power on the aircraft and pull it off the ground and get it off the ground as quickly as you possibly can. That's every effort they could make to in, in, in the decision. So you're great? Hmm? You're great? Uh, A++, plus plus, actually. All right. So, Nick, yeah. what do you think? Same thing? Uh, yeah, right. I'm, I'm going to give him an A because I think okay. that's, that's good thinking. Now, was um, that was that the whole part, the whole exam, or was there like I a wish. part B? <laughs> 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 I wish they then uh, you can see. I, I think they would have worked out that you can't get the airplane off the ground at 130 knots. Uh, and, and I think uh, having chatted to uh, Captain L uh, about the A321, I think it's quite tail strike prone. It's it's not an easy airplane to land without banging the tail and certainly in takeoff it'd be the same similar situation so um, they probably had an idea they might have banged the tail but they re- disregarded that and continued to climb the aircraft to thirty-three thousand feet uh, and continue to delhi now the problem there arises you damage the skin of the aircraft and you're now pressurizing the aircraft and climbing up to quite a high altitude to conduct a flight so if that skin were to give way you could end up with a significant um, explosive decompression that would obviously cause uh, a lot of problems for everybody on board 
your grade then for uh, the second half of the exam? F. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thinking like a D minus on, on that one. I mean, I'm thinking F, F yeah. or F minus. <laughs> Bad decision. Yeah. So when they landed, the uh, they found that there was damage to the tail skin, and subsequently discovered there was also structural damage to the fuselage frame. So, so the uh, DGCA, the investigation uh, um, organization in near India have opened an investigation, and both pilots have been de-rostered, a nice way of saying they've been grounded until the end of the investigation. And they say it's unclear why the crew continued the flight to Delhi, and the probe will focus on whether the crew were aware of the extent of the damage and whether a tail strike sensor was installed. Now, I know on my 330s and, and retrofitted to the 340s, we had a tra- tail strike sensor. But even so, you've got cabin crew there in the back galley, uh, usually on most of these airplanes. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty obvious when you <laughs> scrape the back end of the aircraft down the runway. It makes an awful lot of noise at the back of the airplane, apparently. So I'd Ladies be very surprised. Am I totally screwed or what? <laughs> 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 Uh, that's, that's what the uh, pilots are saying now. Yeah. So it looks like it was an Indian Air Force Jeep. So they confirmed oh. that during the morning hours, a service vehicle had been cleared for a routine task on Poon's runway. And the service vehicle was near the runway. They won't admit that it went on the runway, forcing the A321 to rotate earlier than planned. Hmm. The Air Force is also conducting an investigation, so there's probably some chap there who's peeling an awful lot of potatoes right now. Yeah, so he's also saying, Ladies and gentlemen, am I totally screwed or what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the only good thing about this is that they had no injuries, never know, you know, they got the aircraft safely on the ground. You know, the story is 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 great from that point of view, but the rest of it, no, we're not too sure about some of those decisions. Yep. Well, you know, I, I have an answer to the, the reason why they wanted to go to Delhi. Yeah, it's well, their freedom link. They want to go home. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> that might have something to do with it. May have. I mean, I, 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 so say it jokingly, but that very well could have had something to do with it. Or they, you know, had a hot date or, you know, something in Delhi. They just didn't want to go back to that airport. Maybe, you know, I don't know runway lengths. Obviously, probably not an issue. However, you know, I maybe the weather. I mean, we don't have all the data here, right? So maybe the weather was questionable. Yeah, quit trying to defend them, Dana. They're screwed. Uh, you know what? You know me. I try to play good devil, devil's advocate, and I'm just throwing that out. We don't have all the facts. Ah, uh, you're playing the good devil today. Okay. Yeah, I am. Smile. Well, that was the news, and now it's time for the part of the show where we kind of catch up with each other and what we've been doing since the last show. And uh, let's see. Nick, how about you start out? Well, uh, I have had a, a, a quiet few days, thanks very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only thing I really did was um, pop off and join a bunch of uh, my old comrades and some new captains at a uh, dinner, which uh, Virgin Atlantic put on at a rather swish uh, club in Mayfair in London uh, a few days back. And that was very pleasant indeed. So uh, met with, uh, you know, champagne and canapes and then uh, up for a, a lovely meal. Um, sat down with the new, uh, one of the new directors, uh, 
and um, some old comrades at our table, and uh, they had, I don't know, probably about 10 new captains had been promoted, so this was really to celebrate their um, promotion, which is, uh, I think, an excellent uh, thing for the company to do. But also they got some of us uh, retired guys and girls in because uh, we had the lovely Camilla, uh, who was one of our lady captains, sitting near us, so we were able to chat with them and uh, it's just nice when the company think oh yeah we uh, we'll get these blokes back and uh, and uh, let them enjoy uh, a meal on the company so that was very pleasant indeed so that's really been it there's been nothing else going on i'm uh, because it's been quite quiet i'm well up on my plane tail so uh, i've got the one tonight is obviously done and then i've nearly finished the next week's one which is great because i do have a busy time coming up with uh, some lectures uh, a few parties uh, and um uh, some photography work which will be pleasant for a change but Excellent. that's been it really for Were, me did they uh, at the dinner did they ask for any of your sage advice Certainly not. <laughs> okay. Good thing. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought. Absolutely. No, they missed out. They they could have learned a lot from you. Okay. Well, thanks, Nick. Um, let's see. Dana, uh, how about Hi. yourself? What you been up to? Well, I just finished a four-day trip. Uh, very challenging weather, as I'm sure you're well aware, uh, Jeff. The uh, last four days has been difficult <clears throat> coming in and out of Atlanta. Uh, flew a uh, first three, well, let me say, it was yeah, first day was three legs, second day was three legs with a um, uh, little bit of a meetup. I'm sure you might have something to say on that one. Do you? I do. I have some audio here. You well, why don't to- you go ahead and roll that? Okay, let's do that. Hello, APG community and OB. Posing bases community. This is Captain Dana, and I'm sitting right here with AG in a very uh, small South Central U.S. city that they are working in. I think we call it the Triad. That's right. The we secret location. The yeah. secret location, the Triad. And uh, I'm sitting here with AG and my first officer, and we just finished a wonderful. Uh, burger joint it is called hops in yeah hops burgers hops burgers there we go i was trying to read the sign uh, as we're recording here anyways uh, i wanted to pop in and say hello to both communities because we're going to share this recording uh amongst both of our podcasts uh, so it should be a fun fun time without further ado i want to let ag say hello and, and see what he has to say hello apg and of course, OB listeners, I'm sure it's been at least 20 minutes since you've heard my voice on the program. I know I'm probably featured on the APG show every 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, if you guys knew it was good for you anyway. Um, um, Liz, just a note, uh, go ahead and uh, if we ever receive anything from AG again, put him on the uh, the TB list, the total total ban. Okay, thank you. Um, but seriously, uh, good to talk to you guys. Great dinner. That was a fantastic burger. If you're ever in the Triad area, if you can figure out how to get here, Hops Burgers. Uh, there's two locations. Fantastic. Get the buffalo fries. Very good. 
Oh, I have to, I have to disagree. The poutine. Oh, poutine. Ooh, no, the poutine was really good, but my vegetable plate was even better. Our Canadian listeners will. Um, Hi, Liz. <laughs> Liz and Charlie Papa and Julia Bravo. Uh, shout out to you guys. Uh, I did try the poutine fries. They are pretty amazing. So. You got that going on in Canada. You do have that going on. And by the way, poutine is not what you Americans think is poutine. It's French fries covered with brown gravy with cheese on it. That's right. Sounds yeah. delectable. It was something I shouldn't be eating. Very good. But uh, I don't know. I had, a, I had a great time. How about you, AG? Yeah, very good. Yeah, very nice. My first officer's being shy in the back seat. But actually, <laughs> he we finally figured out where we had... Uh, uh, flown together before, and anybody that's ever heard of Radio Roger, this is, this is the first officer I had when I met Radio Roger in Newark, New Jersey, when I was on an overnight. So, mm. very interesting backstory on that. Anyways, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to say, AG? Uh, no. Well, in that case, why don't we send it back to the studio? All right, Captain Jeff, back to you. RH, back to you. Bye-bye, guys. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, sounds like you guys had a good time, Dana. So I'm confused. Was that RH or AG? That was AG. AG was sending it to Jeff, and I was sending it to RH. <laughs> okay, yeah, he was, because they're going to play, they're gonna play the, um, the same thing yeah. on their show. I uh, gotcha. Yeah. On their show, exactly. Come on, Nick. He, Try to keep a, up with uh, it. He's a man of little few words, isn't he? I suppose that comes from his helicopter flying because those damn things are so noisy. You spent the entire flight in silence because there wasn't any point <laughs> trying to that. talk to each other, was there? Right. Not much talking going on. No. For sure. <laughs> now he's he's a super guy, uh, really cool, laid back. It, you know, kind of quiet on the quiet side. Um, but we had really good conversation. My first officer, uh, also a uh, um, military guy. And no, oh, I'm sorry. I, you know, I don't even think we talked about that. I don't think he's military, um, but same age age range kind of thing. So that uh, that worked out really well. Um, and let me tell you what that burger was. Uh, and I'm not a big burger guy, and certainly not a French fry guy. I never eat them, but whenever I see poutine on the menu, I make an exception. And it was, uh, you know, I, <clears throat> very rarely do I ever have a bad meal because I'm always saying it's wonderful, a fabulous food. You know, whenever I'm, I'm doing the podcast reviews here. So, but that was uh, that was fun meetup. Um, then, uh, oh, first day uh, flying into Baltimore, uh, had uh, ATC announcing that there was a drone on short final into Baltimore on runway three three. I think left. I think we have the uh, uh, the sound the um, recording yep. of that. Okay, yeah, there it is. Quick, quick, dr- turn on the drone dome defense. Ding, <laughs> ding. <laughs> <Ba-ding. laughs> yeah, and, and you know, of course, your your anxiety on that. You know, my anxiety got a little elevated because now I'm flying an airplane at a relatively high speed with high mass, flying against something that has little mass but has certainly a possible possibility of some high impact power. So we kept our eyes peeled for, but apparently it it went away. Before we got there, and that was a good thing. Uh, you know, I have to admit this, Jeff. Um, you know, you and I are very familiar with going through Atlanta and swapping aircraft all the time. Mm-hmm. The first two days, six legs with the same aircraft and the same flight attendants. The entire crew and the aircraft stayed together for all six legs. That was amazing. You know, I didn't I see a, a memo um, a little while, a while back uh, from our company that said that they were going to try to start doing that more yeah 
So that's good to uh, good to see. Yeah, I think uh, on this trip uh, for the first, um, well, I think yeah, every day of the trip, I stayed on the same jet, not the same one for the entire three days, but the same every day. We kept the same airplane, so we didn't have to swap. So that was nice. Yeah, it was it was it was fantastic, and and I even wrote a report into the company stating as such because it it helped. It went a long way to build unity within within our you know within our little work group i mean the flight attendants and and the two pilots we kind of got to know each other and you know don't have to rebrief every time keeping the same aircraft don't have to worry about looking up all the MELs, time pressures of course you know you gain about 10 minutes by not swapping an aircraft because you know not waiting for everybody to get off the aircraft then going to the new aircraft getting settled in going through the logbook and and reacquainting yourself with what's going on with that aircraft so it is actually a, a big advantage so I, I really wanted to comment on that and, and say that you know we Really enjoyed having the opportunity to do that. Um, a lot of bad weather, um, a lot of uh, low low uh, Cat One approaches, right down to minimums. Uh, had one Auto Land, um, and uh, yeah, a couple of uh, MELs that were interesting. My FO got rerouted into Baltimore, and I ended up going deadheading still to Birmingham, and then ended up in Charleston. In uh, the aircraft that I took over to. Uh, over to Charleston had no auto throttles and no VNAV as a result um, in very bad weather. So that was I love fun. It. I love it when they I, have I, that. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I That's what I just said. You know, that was yeah. fun. And I meant yeah. that it was fun because it keeps you so much more in tune to what's going on. Mm-hmm. You're just not sitting there just monitoring stuff. Although you're always thinking and, 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 and really um, considering all the, you know, the, the different things that can happen, but when you have something like that, and then the same thing. I mean, I had no auto spoilers on different on the last day. Kept the aircraft for three legs, and you know the, the best landings of the, the entire trip were on the last day. I mean, it was just you know the aircraft touched down nice and soft. Then you bring out the auto spoilers, you know, bring out the mainly uh, bring out the spoilers, and everybody getting on the off the aircraft. Wow, that's the best lane you've ever had. Well, it, and, it, and it makes a difference because you're yeah. able to touch the aircraft down and, and then, then deploy the spoiler. So, well, you know, it's uh, you just know, like the uh, seven, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, the, like the 727 did not have auto spoiler system. And so it was always manual spoilers and it was always the captain, whether, whether the captain was flying or the first officer flying. And there was a saying that we had Dana that uh, you can make, like the captain can make um, a good landing bad and can make a bad landing good depending on how they actuate the uh, spoilers on landing. Correct. Oh, and, and I just realized why it confused why military, not military, because I did have two other first officers on this trip, and one of them I had just recently flown with, and he was a, uh, a C-130 guy, um, and we flown, I flew with him. So he was pictured in my mind, so that's why I was thinking military. Uh, but uh, anyways, yeah, that's uh, – that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Got a lot of construction going on in the house right now. Got the remodel of the uh, master bathroom. Needed to be done. All right. Very good. Well, thank you, Dana. Thank you. I'm glad you took some time away from the construction uh, project mm-hmm. to uh, be on the show with us today. Wouldn't miss it for the world. All right. Uh, let's see. I was on a three-day trip this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, and... It was instead of going back and forth between Rochester and New York, this time it was going back and forth between Des Moines, Iowa, except for the very last turnaround, which was up to Dulles, which it's been a while since I've been up to Washington Dulles International Airport. And uh, 
So, yeah, it worked out well. As you mentioned, the weather was kind of cruddy, uh, a lot of rainy, um, low visibility kind of stuff uh, in Atlanta every single day. And as you said, um, mostly right down to minimums on the Cat 1s. And uh, on one of them, we elected to set up uh, for a Category 3 Autoland. And I'm glad we did because it was pretty, uh, pretty skosh. We, uh, you know, it was definitely way above Cat 2, Cat 3 minimums, but uh, getting close to being below Category 1. So I'm glad we briefed it that way and I flew it. And I just wrote a note on my notepad here when you were talking about that that I, I need to remember to log my Category 3 <laughs> landing in the uh, in our scheduling system. If if you uh, if it was logged in the airplane, then it should be logged in the scheduling system. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Oops. It doesn't okay. work that way. Uh, it's it, it logs your landing, but it does not log your uh, Category 3. So you have to do that manually. Every time I've checked, anyway. It was definitely logged in the airplane. But uh, last time I've, I've done, I've did this, yep, it wasn't marked. So you might want to go in there and just check and just, just make sure. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Oh, I also had a little meetup on the second day of the trip, the second layover in Des Moines, Iowa. The first uh, layover I was, it was spent mostly with uh, talking with uh, the democratic um, national party and uh, going over the the whole problem with the counting of the caucus votes and such. And because I'm kind of a leading expert in that field and uh, no, I'm just kidding. I had, had nothing to do with that. Uh, but uh, the second day, Justin O'Neill contacted me and uh, said, if you're up to getting some good barbecue, uh, let me know. And I said, absolutely. And here's a little bit of uh, audio from our meetup on Tuesday. I am in a vehicle. I don't know who this person is. I think they've just kidnapped me. What? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we are, uh, we uh, I'm with Justin O'Neill, a uh, community member, and he saw that I was going to be in Des Moines for a couple of nights this week, and uh, he said, hey, you want to go get some good barbecue uh, from Iowa uh, while you're here on Tuesday? Thought, yeah, I'm always up for barbecue. So uh, he picked me up from the hotel downtown. We drove up here to, what did you call this area, the north side? Yeah, north, north, uh, north, north Des Moines, yeah. North Des Moines. And went to Smokey D's Barbecue, and it was really, really good. I had ribs, and uh, what what did you end up having? Uh, the burnt ends. Burnt ends. Burnt ends. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, and I, I guess that, I, I was watching uh, something on television, I believe, uh, the the ends, the bird ends are actually something that comes off the rack of ribs, right? Something like that. I just know they're delicious. They are. They are. Anyway, uh, so we uh, drove up here. Uh, he picked me up, drove me up to Smoky D's, and then I met up with, uh, oh, it's a bumpy road, sorry. Um, met up with uh, my first officer, um, Cody, and his wife, Ashley, and their son, Jackson, I believe, um, they, uh, his wife and son were up here visiting, uh, her family that live in the area. And, uh, so I said, if you're, if you're interested, why don't you come up there and, uh, join us at Smokey D's. And so they did. And so it was a very, very nice to meet all of the, uh, of Cody's in-laws as well as his wife and, and his son. And, uh, now we're heading back to the hotel because, Justin's got to get me in bed uh, before 
a certain hour because I have to get up at like 3 o'clock in the morning, which is crazy. But, yeah, that's the kind of trip I like to fly. Anyway, so I'm going to hold the microphone in front of because he's driving, so he can't hold the microphone himself. I'm going to let um, Justin say hi to everybody in the, uh, on the crew and the community and uh, say whatever you want. Yeah, you got to hold the microphone there. Got to change the own gears here on the truck. So, Watch yeah, out, it was, ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's already got a dent in the back. So, I don't know. A, anyway, yeah, saw Captain Jeff was going to be in town. Figured, yeah, shoot you a message. See if you wanted to do a meetup. We we're kind of joking on the way up here about y'all talking about barbecue. So, shot some options for barbecue. We didn't just choose the good one; we chose the best one. Uh, which was Smoky D's, but apparently we found out tonight that there's a, a better one. What was that, Cactus Bob's or something? Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure exactly where that is, but uh, I guess it's a little bit further north. Yeah, so, you know, if you're ever back in town, that that could be another option. But, yeah, glad to have you in Des Moines. Glad to take you up there to, to get some barbecue and get you out of the hotel for an evening. Awesome. Yeah, uh, so Justin and I were communicating back and forth and he said okay there's a place out near the airport and he put in parentheses good and then uh, the place jethro jethro's yeah down here closer to the hotel one local thing jethro's okay he said better Better. and then smoky d's best yeah definitely best uh my wife and i had it at our wedding so that's uh pretty high praise there if they came and catered that thing so always always happy to get up there when we can Absolutely. So, um, I don't know if we're going to be flying over your house tomorrow morning, but we did this morning. Um, uh, our flight path took us almost right over the top of uh, of Justin's house. So, if uh, if we do it again tomorrow morning, make sure that you're uh, out there waving. We'll look for you. Can you flash the lights on your way over? Sure. <laughs> you know, most people wouldn't... Uh wouldn't like the fact that airplanes buzz your house at 5:30 in the morning but uh, it's kind of a selling point if you like to like to watch yeah if you're an aviation geek you know we're all for that kind of stuff anyway um uh, i guess it's now time to uh send it back to the live recording and uh just wanted to say hello and introduce you to justin nice to meet you apg community he was waving. They can't see you. They can't see you. It's not video. <laughs> Driving downtown here. And yeah. Okay. All right. Well, back to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Good job, Jeff. Thank you. Shut up, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff. Shut, shut, up. Up. shut up, Jeff. Yeah, so it was a lot of fun, our uh, meetup in Des Moines. And uh, Justin, it was a, a pleasure meeting you. And hope to meet up with you again in the future. And uh, anybody listening right now, if you... Happen to live in the Des Moines area. I'm sorry you didn't see our last minute um, Sochmead alert that uh, we were uh, sort of having a little meet up there. But uh, maybe next time we'll get to see you. And I certainly envy you visiting all these fabulous restaurants and eating barbecue all the time. That sounds great. Yeah, it was funny because um, I was talking with Liz and I said, I wonder if um, if people think that that's all I eat when I go on my layovers. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> barbecue. No. And I said, well, cause you know, usually when I'm talking about food, it's, it's barbecue because, uh, it's usually because when I'm flying with Brent Heron, um, he and I like to always, you know, go for barbecue places. And, uh, but that's just a, a, a fraction of the different types of cuisines that I, 
eat while I'm while I'm uh, on the trips. I, I like everything, actually. That's my problem. <laughs> I like everything. Uh, but uh, I was glad you had fun there. Yeah, we did. And let's see what else. Um, I am basically, unless I pick up uh, some overtime flying tomorrow and Saturday, which I probably won't because I do have some obligations at my church, I uh, will be off until the first part of March because I have a vacation period next week. So that'll be nice. Get to actually, you know, get some good sleep, not have to wake up at three o'clock in the morning. Again, I can't really complain too much because that's the, that's what I do. I, I fly those trips on purpose. And so I can't really complain about getting up super early in the morning. But, um, so I'm looking forward to that. And I guess now would be a good time for us to transition to the coffee fund. Here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, the Coffee Fund is your way, dear listener, to support the show in a financial way. And we call that the Coffee Fund. And you can become part of the Coffee Fund Club. No, the Coffee Bar Club or the Coffee Fund Cadre. Your choice. And a couple different ways to do that. Uh, one is the Coffee Fund Classic Method, which is basically via PayPal. And since the last episode, we have contributions from Daniel Kember, excuse me, Kember, uh, George Leslie, Ron Tech Solutions, uh, not Wrong Tech, but Ron Tech, uh, Chris Randall, Randy Ward, and David Leap. Um, so thank you, all of you, for using the classic method of the coffee fund. And the other way to do it is to become a patron of the show uh, via patreon.com. Basically, you say, I'm going to give you this much money per episode, and you can you know, restrict the maximum amount that uh, you get charged for the month, etc. But uh, in either of these cases, you, know, you have access to some perks like uh, our occasional, uh, what do we call them? Crew logs. And uh, since the last episode, we have a new patron, and his name, Ben Singer. So, funny story about our new patron, Ben Singer. Uh, I was going for, I think it was the the day that I came home from my trip last week on Thursday. Uh, no, must have been the next night. Uh, because the the thing that I did on the uh, when I came home from the trip last week was uh, record last week's show. So um, I guess it was the, I don't know when it was, heck. I went out to um, this place called the Yero Village, a Greek restaurant um, not too far from where I live. Uh, to pick up some uh, dinner for Linda and I, my wife. And um, I was walking in the front door of the Euro Village, and this guy walks up to me and he goes, Hi, Captain Jeff. And I went, Oh, hi. And uh, he said, My name's Ben. And so I, I went, Oh, okay. He's a listener of the show. And he said, In fact, I just became a patron of the show. <laughs> and he said, Like a half an hour ago. So it was a little bit of after six o'clock. What a coincidence. Yeah. And at five 30, I said, Oh really? I didn't know. And then of course I hadn't seen my 
mail or I didn't get any kind of a notification because it was just literally less than an hour before that time that he signed up to become a patron of the show. And he said, yeah, I've met Dana at the, um, that Atlanta, um, av geek meetup or whatever the title of it was in, um, that, uh, Derek Vento, uh, put on and, and Dana went, uh, representing the, uh, the APG show. And so, uh, Ben has met, um, Dana and he's met me now. And so when I was waiting for the dinner, I ordered the dinner and I was waiting for it to be prepared. And, uh, I was going through my phone and sure, sure enough, <laughs> I see this thing from, from Ben and he was there with his wife. Uh, they were having a nice dinner and then they were going to go see a movie. So that was like, talk about a small world. It was like, wow, <laughs> that's wow, crazy. Absolutely. You sure he wasn't just stalking you? Well, maybe he was. In fact, I think I saw him in my backyard earlier today. So Ben, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> or I tell you what, you can stalk me if you, if you up your contribution, like 20 fold, then I'll put up go. with it. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, so I thought that was a pretty, this, this aviation world that we're in is truly a small one for sure. Absolutely. So welcome, Ben. And thanks to all the folks who contributed via the Classic Fund. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get on with the, one of the best parts of the show. Your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Uh, the first item there is from Cameron, and actually the first two of these uh, feedback, um, uh, the first two feedback items in today's show uh, have to do with that incident um, out of Sydney where the Qantas A330 was taking off and performing their departure procedure and the airplane coming in to land on that same runway um, behind them. Uh, ended up uh, being told to um, execute their missed approach procedure because it looked like the 330 was going to still be on the runway. And so there was a little uh, time or a little incident where the airplanes got sort of close together. And so Cameron writes, just want to give an explanation on the 737 and A330 Qantas near miss. I'm familiar with the Sydney airport ops. The active runways at the time were 34 left and 34 right, both. Due to cl close proximity of the runways, parallel ops are in place. You cannot turn towards the opposing runway. Both aircraft were using 3-4 right with both the departure and missed approach go-around directions for that runway uh, are all right turns to the east. Question for you all. At one point on approach, would you make the decision to go around if another aircraft was still on the runway? I would have thought 400 feet would be a bit late. Safe skies and tailwinds, Cameron. And he says, by the way, he is also... A new listener, and he is also a patron. So, welcome, Cameron, uh, to the ABG community, and thank you for be, being a patron of the show. Now, I'll start off by saying that uh, this whole kind of situation is very fluid and dynamic. I guess that's the same saying the same thing, isn't it? But uh, you have to kind of, or I think, you have to have a sense of when you think that that previous airplane is going to be lifting off, because as soon as it lifts off, it's your runway now, if you're the one coming in for landing. Um, and I, in my experience, Nick, it, the controllers seem to be a little bit more conservative than I would be. I would probably, you know, the times that I've had to go around because of traffic still on the takeoff roll or landing roll, um, if it were left to me, I probably would have gone a little bit longer before, deciding, okay, we can't do this because they are still on my runway. 
and I need to go around. And um, they uh, tend to be a little bit more conservative and do it a little bit earlier because a couple of times I've gone, well, if you just waited like two potatoes, two seconds, I think this whole thing would have been resolved and you wouldn't have had to, you know, make me go around. How about you? Yeah, and that's the the point where you get these kind of uh, problems, uh, you know, aircraft getting relatively close proximity, one in the go around and one taken off and in its departure. So unless you separate them very quickly, um, then you're going to get these kind of incidents. Um, I'm a bit with you. If it's a takeoff, they really need to have broken ground. But I don't mind if he's well down the runway. I don't mind having that decision made for me at 50 feet. Quite honestly, right. I don't really care. Um, so, yes, I can wait quite late. I don't mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he's on the threshold, then, uh, yeah, uh, 400 feet would probably be a bit late for me. Right, yes. <laughs> <would be> good. <laughs> I'd, rather, I'd rather be well established. Here. I don't want to go that low because you, you, this guy's obviously not going to get out of the way. Exactly. The Landing traffic, not too fast. Uh, I, I used to fly big airplanes, so I would rather have the runway well clear because I know my landing roll could be quite significant and if it's uh you know i'm not like a little 320 that can land and start relatively sh- quickly mm-hmm. i know i'm going to use a lot of runway so i'd rather have the runway to myself but um and i would always rather the air traffickers were a bit on the conservative side but you're right when it's when you're just trying to get the flight in and you know it's going to be 10 or 15 minutes if you do a go around before you can land and if it's you know the first or second leg of the day for you guys and you know it's going to have a roll-on effect throughout the day uh, then you really want to get them on the ground and you you're not too fussy i suspect mm-hmm. but for me it was usually the one landing of the day the end of my day's work usually after a very long uh, flight i was more than happy to get the airplane on the ground but i didn't have a lot of uh, by that time of the day usually a, a lot of um spare capacity i was usually pretty tired to um to run things too close so it wasn't like i was uh, you know on my metal i was usually thinking oh, get this bloody thing on the ground i want to go home right right <laughs> yeah i could totally understand that yeah so yeah uh, as you say uh, sometimes the the decision for the controller to make you go around can put you in a much more dangerous situation than if they just let you land, even if the airplane is like still way at the other end of the runway. Um, you know, again, and you make a good point. It depends on what type of airplane you're flying as well and how quickly it can, can slow down and stop and that kind of thing. But, uh, it's a judgment call that they make They're they're trained to do. And, you know, uh, what can you say? Well, I've been chatted to, um, uh, Adam, uh, our lovely air traffic controller at Heathrow, about this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have pretty hard and fast rules. You know, it's 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 not something that they can use a lot of judgment on. Uh, so, you know, if it gets to the point where they're going to break that rule, they they're definitely going to send you around. Yep. And uh, the times I've been sent round uh, at Heathrow because there was an aircraft on the runway, it did happen reasonably early. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they they obviously went. With their experience, now this guy's not going to get in Sydney Brown. All right. Uh, thank you, Cameron, for sending us the feedback and also becoming a supporter of the show. Um, also, Ben Ippolito uh, sent us feedback regarding this, and he says, and it really hurts me to say this first sentence, Captain Nick is right. 
Way. I was gonna. I should have edited it. This year, Sydney does do sod props. That's, <laughs> that does not sound very no, uh, no healthy. It sounds you don't kind of do painful. S o d p r o p s, which stands for simultaneous opposite direction parallel runway operations, where arrivals are two, three, four left, departures from one six left. But this is normally during the transition to from the curfew, which is when. Acme Red used to arrive from Hong Kong. Indeed. So that's why you were kind of uh, familiar with that. Used kind to of it. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. It, For, was an, it was an awkward time of the day to arrive as well because they, they had a quite a, a firm curfew and uh, they had all the guys coming across the Pacific who were generally pretty tight on gas arriving uh, and we were uh, in comparison flash uh, or, and we all arrived just after 6 a.m. So mm. it was all a bit of a bun fight. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Ben goes on for the incident. However, they were on three, four left, right configuration. And this was on three, four, right. The a three thirty likely on a Marub departure. And it was, which has a sharp right turn on departure to come back and then set course East. All RNAV now, but it's the equivalent of turning back to the 073 radial, if memory serves. So about 120 degrees right turn, then back left 30 degrees or so to get the outbound track. Uh, Captain Jeff, it doesn't sound bad until you read the time of the incident. This was in the dark. Not the time you really want to be in unscheduled formation with a company heavy. And then, um, so I... uh, put a little note here that in my opinion the controller should have immediately issued vectors for one or both flights to keep them separated also both flights pilots should have been situationally aware of what was unfolding and should have had some sort of a plan in their minds to deal with the possibility of lack of separation that is why i say that we as pilots should always be listening to everything going on on the frequency not just calls made to your flight and also in this situation if i remember correctly nick it was a trainee controller and perhaps the supervisor wanted to let this go a little bit further just to see how the trainee would handle it. And maybe he waited too long and uh, to take control of the situation himself and start, you know, giving vectors and stuff for the airplane. So they didn't get in a situation where they had a traffic alert and a potential conflict. You're right. And and having listened to, we were listening to uh, AG earlier on, having listened to opposing bases in their show and their discussions about, you know, the other voice that comes on sometimes when you hear this, the, the instructing air trafficker come and override something that the uh, trainee has said, um, then they say it's always terribly difficult. I think it's, it's, it's equally so in an aircraft, but generally uh, we have a pretty good feeling for when somebody's made a bit of a mistake i don't think it's necessarily quite as easy in the world of air traffic so um yeah i it really comes down to the ability of the instructor and his judgment but uh, mm-hmm. i don't think it was it was done particularly well obviously here otherwise there wouldn't have been this situation just going up to uh, washington uh, yesterday uh, i can i kind of sort of uh, started to sense that the controller was a new person, perhaps somebody that was being trained, uh, because you know his his response to people's communications was it was like slightly delayed, and then sometimes it didn't sound very confident. And I I kind of said over to my first officer, I said, I think this is a trainee. And then all of a sudden, right after I said that, the uh, supervisor gets on and just starts 
just issuing all these commands to all these different airplanes just to kind of straighten up the situation. And, and we just kind of looked at each other and went, yep, that, that's what was going on there. He let him go about as far as he could stand it. And he said, okay, I'm taking over. Move. Yep. Yeah, I think that's, that's difficult because there's obviously a bit of a hit on the uh, trainee's confidence, just as it would be for a pilot if uh, you had to take over control and straighten things out. So right. uh, you never want to do that. You'd much rather they sold it themselves and kept their confidence level high so they knew they could deal with the situation next time. So, yep. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the best kind of training is, you know, you making the mistakes and you learning from it. But as long as it doesn't end up hurting somebody else. Absolutely. Yep. All uh, right. Uh, so thank you, Ben and Cameron, uh, again. And you for, can keep your sub props to yourself next time. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of rude of him, wasn't it? Yeah, I thought it was dreadful. Yeah. Uh, item three, Dave. Uh, <laughs> he's the guy that sent us the um, uh, the uh, video. Pronouncing English town names. Yes. Jeff, thanks for the segment on pronouncing English town names from my suggestion. It brought me more than a few laughs in this, not the best of times. I've encouraged Jade, she was a lady on the video, to uh, via email to give you some audio fi- feedback follow up. I hope she does. <laughs> yeah, we haven't no, heard. Excellent. Liz, have we heard anything from Jade? No, we haven't heard anything from Jade. Uh, not yet, anyway. And uh, Jeff, P.S., you're a great sport. <laughs> Listener, Dave. <laughs> well, I do what I can to make it entertaining, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I think you had a, a, a brave attempt at most of those, and I thought they were, generally speaking, pretty damn good. Well, you know, I think it's just because of the fact that I've been around people like you, Nick, and uh, others in the UK. I'm, I'm learning um, as much as I can over time. Um, and then speaking, one of the words that we had issues with, especially you, Nick, uh, for a misspelling, um, was Worcestershire. <laughs> right how did i do on that uh yeah, i think you did very well yeah thank worse, you worse. or worcester worcester um anyway um maybe we should have somebody uh from massachusetts because uh, this is from dan in uh worcester massachusetts i think that dana might be the best guy to handle his feedback well thank you jeff i would love to do number four this one is sent in from dan in regarding the orh airport code He's, he writes, I am a new listener to the show, and I'm loving it so far. It really brightens up my week. Given the recent discussions on airport codes and the pronunciation of places in the UK and the U.S. counterparts, I couldn't help but share this article from our local paper about the airport code for Worcester Regional Airport, ORH. Thank you so much for making such a great show. Wishing you clear skies and tailwinds. Dan from Worcester, Massachusetts. Well, in the uh, news telegram from Worcester in Millbury, they, uh, here's an article that they wrote. They came bearing questions about expanded service and ticket prices at Worcester Regional Airport. But then someone asked the question really on people's minds. Why is Worcester Regional Airport's code ORH? A woman asked at the Blackstone Valley Chamber of Commerce breakfast last month. The audience broke out laughing. But the answer, or at least any answer, bears setting on the record. Worcester Regional Airport Director Andy Davis replied, the airport actually tried to get the DOT to change the airport code to something more recognizable for Worcester. 
but regulators do not allow commercial airports to have either a K or a double U as a letter because radio stations and television stations are used for navigation aids. Mr. Davis said and officials didn't want to confuse radio antennas with the airports. So we had to drop the first letter, Davis said. The next three letters in sequence, O-R-C, were already taken, Davis said. A Google search gives that as the code for Orange City Municipal Airport near Sioux City, Iowa. Which leads to the H, which, well, that's a matter of some speculation. The official explanation from the Federal Aviation Administration mentions the restrictions on the letters W and K in the line with Davis's explanation. The Federal Communication Commission restricts U.S. airport codes from beginning with the letters W and K reserving them for radio station designations and the uh, K for International uh, Association for U.S. airports. But the statement did not really address the H. With ORC, or the other OR codes already taken, Worcester, W-O-R, Worcester, W-O-R, C-E-S-T-R, opted for the O-R-H, the statement reads. The only thing I can think of was one of the Bureaucrats in Washington probably thought he was finding a three-letter code for Worcester. My summation on that is, well, if you're from Boston, then you know it's Worcester. No, it's not Worcester. That's the way they actually have it spelt out here, and that's how I think they came to the O-R-H. However, the way it's actually spelt and the way that we say it in the Boston area is Worcester. There is no H in Worcester. It's Worcester. So one would surmise that probably O-R-H probably came from somebody misunderstanding the way that Worcester or Worcester is actually spelt here in the United States in the Northeast. It's Worcester, W-O-R-C-E-S-T-R. So that would be my summation on it, and uh, that's how I, uh, I, I come to the conclusion on it. Anyways, thank you for writing in for us, uh, Dan. We appreciate your feedback. I think they personally... They should change the uh, name of the airport to uh, Auxville or something. <laughs> to, to match the code. Yeah. I think yeah, just basically this this story brings the whole, the whole thing in a huge, big circle, um, starting with that video on how to pronounce the names of um, English towns, villages, cities, that kind of thing, where Miss Jade apparently misspelled Worcester. There is no H in that, but she had it in there, and apparently the people that came up with this code thought that there was an H in this word as well. So Absolutely. I think they should just ban the word Wooster, Wooster, and uh, just move on. Call it something else. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. And just leave it, leave the source. Yeah. Then you don't have to worry about it anymore. All right. Thank you, Dana. Uh, let's see, continuing on with item five, and this is from boom operator, Chris, he says, hi there, I'm captain boom operator. Doom, do, do, do. Yeah. Love it. Um, yeah, I don't think that's it. I think smooth operator, a smooth boom operator. Ooh. Hi there, captain Jeff, captain Dana, captain Nick and Dr. Steph. I'm a fairly new listener and found out about your podcast from those guys on the other side of the microphone that record 
from a mythical place that no one can figure out where it is. I've been listening for a few months now, and I fear I have developed the syndrome. I listen, uh, listen to the current and then slowly work my way back. The reason for my feedback today, other than to say I love the podcast and look forward to it every week, is Captain Jeff, it seems you and my father share quite the same route when it comes to your careers. Both you and Captain Carl uh, Rabe, Rabe uh, both grew up in Los Alamitos. They joined the military. He went the Navy route and flew Hornets, then got hired by Acme and flew the panel on the 727. Moved on to the Mad Dog and now finally for him, the 7576. He has one more year of flying left until the FAA, in their infinite wisdom, says he's too old. You could have crossed paths at some point as far back as the 70s and not even know it. Keep up the great work. I can't wait for each new podcast. Captain Jeff, Captain Dana, next time I'm in Alpharetta visiting family and neither of you are on a trip, dinner is on me. Captain Nick, unfortunately, I haven't been to the UK since I left the Air Force and missed visiting your beautiful country terribly, especially Mildenhall and Lake and Heath. Hopefully someday I'll return to uh, on my own dime. Dr. Steph, she's not here, sadly, uh, but she's probably already le- read this. Uh, Dr. Steph, if you ever find yourself back in Northern California, I will treat you to a tour of the Sierra Nevada Brewery and then a tasting of the wonderful IPAs they only have on tap. I wish you Cavu, strong tailwinds, and tasty IPAs. Again, boom operator, Chris. Sounds nice. Very nice. Wouldn't mind going to uh, the brewery. That uh, sounds really nice. Now, I can I can attest to the fact that Dan, uh, that Steph has been to the Sierra Nevada Brewery in, um, I forgot the exact name of the place, but it's uh, near Hendersonville, um, and not too far from Asheville. They have a, another big brewery and a restaurant and that kind of thing there um kind of their east coast operations center and brewing center and i was the reason why i know it because i was there and she and justice and uh, a few others were i think actually miami rick was there as well that was that time that i went up with uh, uh or miami rick and i went over to charlotte and then joined steph and we drove in steph's jeep up to Asheville. so that was a lot of fun but the the one in Chico. Was there some kind of beer drinking festival going on? Uh, yes, there was. It was, uh, and uh, she was the only sober one there, and she drank you two under the table. Yeah, that might that may or may not be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I had a little stumble too. I injured myself, and it has nothing to do with the drinking. It had to do with the uneven. No, of course um, not. No, yeah. you quite understand. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm nothing at all. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, it was like what was it called the? Uh, it was it was. Um, What's the kind of music that um, ah, bluegrass? Um, it was bluegrass music festival and a beer festival all combined, and I can't remember. They had a very cute name, and I just don't remember what it was. But it combined bluegrass and and uh, beer together for the festival. Ooh, anyway, it was if good. you smoke bluegrass, does it stay in your lips? Uh, yeah, and it kind of tastes, um, it depends on the bluegrass. Uh, if it's in okay. season, it's pretty tasty, but hmm. just kidding, of course. Fair enough. Um, all right, uh, Greg, I think we still have time. Yeah, we do. Wow, we're doing really well today. We're going to knock out a lot of feedback. Uh, Greg, uh, from the Big Ass Fan Cup. Thank you, Liz. She remembers the name of the festival. It was Brewgrass instead of Bluegrass. Brew, B-R-E-W, grass. Ah, 
Isn't that clever? She's she's smart. Well, I mean, she's clever, but whoever came up with the name is also clever. Anyway, uh, Greg uh, from the Big Ass Fan Company writes, um, since I've officially fallen victim, I think maybe this is not Greg from, yes, it is. It is Greg from. Yes, it is. Okay, Greg Peterson. Okay. Uh, Since I've officially fallen victim to the APG syndrome, I've gone back and started listening to APG from episode 001, and that was like May of 2011. Somewhere around episode eight or nine, Jeff asked what our favorite weather apps were. Since it's been almost 10 years since that episode uh, was released, I thought I might resurrect the question and see what you guys thought about today's latest and greatest weather apps. A couple of my favorites are Radar Scope and Windy. Radar Scope is an app that pulls data directly from the National Weather Service NEXRAD sites and has an amazing amount of data from the radars. Windy has a great website that lets you look at weather at different altitudes. It seems like that would be great for pilots. By the way, uh, Greg, they also have a great uh, iOS app. Uh, I've recently ordered a WeatherFlow personal weather station for my house, and I look forward to using their app because their weather stations gather an enormous amount of data, which can then be published to the web for other folks to use. Here is a link to the WeatherFlow map of weather stations that you can access across the world. And then he gives us a link, which you can find if you uh, look in our show notes. And he says, I can't wait uh, to hear your thoughts. Blue skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds, unless you're landing. And big-ass fans for everyone, Greg Peterson. Thank you, Greg. Um, So, I'll start because um, I was just mentioning that uh, I do um, have the... Well, let me just tell you what I have on my iPhone as far as weather apps are concerned. The one that he mentions right off the bat, um, Radar Scope, I do have that on my on my iPhone. Uh, I also, my favorite actually uh, for radar is MyRadar, M-Y-R-A-D-A-R. Um, they have a free version, and then I think you, there are some in-app upgrades that you can pay to kind of have some more uh, enhancements. And um, Storm Radar is another one that I have on here. Aero Weather, it's a free app, uh, and again, you can upgrade if you w- like to to have more functionality. But Aero Weather, which is A E R O Weather, um, I was going to say that one. Oh, were you? I'm sorry, I shouldn't. No, 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 okay, well, I'll let you talk about it. No, 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 I, I don't really have many anymore. Oh, well, you, tell you me, tell me what you do have, so I don't um, duplicate your effort. Well, one of the few I have is uh, Dark Skies. Oh, yeah, not really an aviation one, but very good if you want warning of a rain in your immediate area in the next hour so uh, if you're flying some sports or something and you want to know what the uh, what, if it's going to start raining and it's usually pretty damn accurate almost to the minute mm-hmm. uh, of starting and stopping so that's a fav- favorite of mine yeah so i have that also dark sky um yeah, each each one of these apps has its like strengths and weaknesses or it's best for this kind of as you just mentioned kind of if you want to know what's happening in your area like an hour to hour forecast for when the rain's going to begin and end that kind of thing dark sky is great also they have a web uh presence uh forecast.io is if you want to look it up on your web browser um the um and so let's see aero weather is a is basically something that we pilots are very familiar with yeah the nice thing about aero weather from my point of view was that i could uh set up uh, a sort of route across the world that I was going to do, and I could pick all the airfields that I was likely to want to know on route, 
and um, you know, download them all before I got airborne, and so they were all there ready. And it just allowed me to pre-flight, um, do some pre-flight work before I got in, because um, for us it was only uh, an hour and a half or an hour twenty to do all the paperwork and uh, wind the airplane up and get get off. So anything you could do, uh, you know, on the journey to the from the hotel to the airport. Oh, excuse me. Uh, That's that beer. No, stop drinking that tea. Hey, so my thoughts are, you know, for, I don't know about you, Jeff, but for me, I mean, it's, it's kind of rapid fire. There, there are a couple things that I use. I, I use our application at work that shows us our turbulence. Yeah. Um, I use that. I'm not using the name on purpose. Um, but it also has the radar in, in, embedded into it, so I have a really good picture of what our route looks like, where we're going, how we're getting there, and what the weather's really looking uh, looking like where we're going in in route. Of course, uh, you know my personal. I have my radar. I happen to like that app quite a bit, and oh. <laughs> somebody's opened up my garage. Oh. Storm Storm Radar is another one that I use, and that's uh, put out by the Weather Channel. Of course, sometimes I just use the general app, the Weather Channel. You know, I don't look at the aviation apps because I find that, um, you know, I don't look at the hourly stuff very closely because I don't want to lean on it too much because it's not approved, right? So I, I, I go to our approved weather sources, and that's what I look at. Um, and, uh, you know, just so I can get a high-level high level view, I, I use those general app, apps for my information. Well, I use the official apps and I because we're required to, or the official sources. But that I also supplement with uh, a lot of the National yep. Weather Service sourced stuff. Anyway, going back to AeroWeather, it's basically for you, you pilots out there. It's uh, and of course, if you're a pilot, you probably already have this on your your smart device. But uh, it gives you the uh, it gives you the METAR, and it also gives you the TAF. And one of the nice things about it is that you can select the uh, to have everything um, not in the raw mode, but in a um, interpreted mode. So Instead of trying to figure out the the time, whether it's, it's Z time or your local time, it, it gives it to you in local time, and it gives you it in like regular English, so you can understand what it is that the uh, the TAF and the METAR uh, is saying. Uh, so anyway, very handy to have. Um, and the um, I also have a uh, I basically made it a web app. It's basically a web page uh, from safari on my phone and it's the uh, aviation weather center from the uh, national ocean oceanographic and administ let's see what's the noaa stand for national oceanographic and atmospheric agency thank you uh they have a great section called uh, convection and in the convection section they have all the sigmats they have uh, the um, uh, the tcf uh, they have the ecpfp which is the extended convective forecast plot it has the uh, convective outlook and uh, has the uh, severe storms uh, center watch warning so it has all kinds of stuff to see in there uh, as well as the uh, individual radar sites the uh, next rad uh, radars and then when you're on those particular pages then you can specify what kind of re- what kind of display you'd like from that next rad site echo tops or um, whatever, um, lots of information there. The one that I've been really geeking out with, uh, lately. Oh, and by the way, Greg, um, 
Windy is a great app. I mean, a great website, but they also have a, an app. I don't know if that's a, a recent thing, but I have that on my phone and use it quite a bit. Another one's called Vent2Sky, V-E-N-T-U-S-K-Y. Gives you a lot of information um, that a lot of the other apps don't. But the one that really is super geeky and I think Steph would really um, would really uh, appreciate because she's kind of a, into meteorolo- meteorology, weather, it's easier for me to say that, is, um, I, again, I've, I've set it up as a web app, but it's actually a, a, a website. Uh, called Tropical Tidbits, and it has the uh, long-range um, models for the um, the uh, GFS and the uh, European um, models for like up to, I don't know, 72 hours or more. Uh, and it also has a short-term uh, plus 17-hour range on the high-resolution radar. It's HRRR. I forget what that stands for. but uh, it gives you uh, an hour-by-hour hour plot of where the weather systems are going to be. And so I'll go in there and go, okay, I'm supposed to arrive in St. Louis at 4 o'clock, and then I can go through there and see exactly what this thing is predict the modeling is for when that storm system is going to be going through, or if it's going to be a pass, that kind of thing. So a lot uh, there's so much information out there. That's just a little bit of what I look at because I'm kind of a weather geek myself. So um, let's see. Liz says, if you want to... Uh, see uh, some information about live lightning strikes. You can go to Blitz or Tung. Blitz or Tung live. Am I pronouncing that right, Liz? Okay, she's nodding her head. Yes. Uh, by the way, the um, the Windy um, app has a, a really cool um, display of uh, lightning strikes. It's a uh, very very cool the way they present it. Anyway, so much stuff out there. Um, most of these things are using data from the same sources, so it just presents it in different ways. So that's uh, that should be a, enough to get everybody going, at least. And thank you, Greg, for asking the question. Item number seven, Kevin. I'm currently an episode behind, so I don't know if this has already been answered or not, but on episode 410, there was some feedback asking about empty airports when viewed from Google Maps. Yeah, you remember that? We were trying to figure out why. Yeah, we saw the shadow of uh, of um, the Millennium Falcon on the ground, didn't we? Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah. <laughs> I recently observed the same phenomenon when looking at KATL on Google Maps. I know ATL is never empty. And I got to doing some research. From what I was able to find out, it seems Google is making use of an algorithm that removes non-static objects from their maps. The intent for this seems to be to remove things like cars and people from the roadway, sidewalks, and parking lots so that the map is easier to observe with less clutter. Unfortunately, this has the side effect of removing planes from the tarmac. While it doesn't seem to affect every airport, there are too many for it to be a coincidence of just being the wrong time of day for the pictures. Which is a shame because as an aviation enthusiast and a map nerd, one of my favorite ways to kill time at work is to see what unique and interesting planes I can find. Anyhow, if this has already been answered by another listener, please disregard. Nope, you're the first. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, As always, thank you for the wonderful podcast. It makes my commute in Atlanta traffic much more bearable. Clear skies and tailwinds. And again, that's from Kevin. That's brilliant, Kevin. Thanks for that, because we were wondering about that, and I was scratching my eye trying to work it out. That's that's clever. And that makes sense, because some of the ones that we actually did see uh, that were kind of parked in kind of obscure 
locations on the airport and we could see them on the picture. Well, it makes sense. If they weren't moving, then they're going to stay in the picture, right? The algorithm won't, won't remove them. But all the other ones, like the, the main gates at the main terminals or concourses, yeah, it makes sense. They're not going to be there for a super long time. And uh, if it's comparing one frame to another frame, it's going to go, okay, that's not something that's there all the time. So I'm going to just leave, you know, leave it out of the picture. To yeah, me, it's just, it's just it's just amazing with technology and how fast it's it's progressing that it's able to do that now. It's mm-hmm. great. It, it's just amazing to me. It is. It's yeah. incredible. Well, speaking of technology and even, I don't know, if you go, go even more into it, science fiction, um, Texas Anlashock um, writes in and he's named his note Sci-Fly. Nick, you want to <laughs> – I think you'd be – best to answer this because I think you're more into some of these sci-fi things. Than- well, I've had an interest. I'm, I'm by, yeah. all mean, by, by no means an expert, but he writes and says, greetings, Captain Jeff and APG crew. You have no idea how much Captain Nick absolutely floored me Bang! when uh, he said he was familiar with Mass Effect. Uh, I would never have guessed. Firefly, I could see, but for some reason, not Mass Effect. My apologies. Uh, we ought to find some place where we can compare any other potential sci-fi interests. But since we're on the subject, out of any sci-fi works, you may be familiar with which ships, planes, or other craft uh, you think would be the most fun to fly. And I've had a think about this, and I hope you guys have as well. But funny, uh, you should mention it, uh, Texas and the shock, but uh, Serenity would have been my choice. Uh, so Serenity is a uh, Firefly-class uh, spacecraft, uh, an O3K-64 Firefly, a mid-bulk transport, Class B, um, with a standard uh, radiation accelerator core. In fact, it was powered by two Blue Sun CV4178B31 trace compressor block and 36 uh, RCS thrusters. So um, it was, the thing I like about it uh, is that it's pretty flexible airplane or a space ship. It can come into the atmosphere and it can also do fairly long uh, space journeys. And it's about the same size as an A340. So it's um, about uh, had a, a wingspan, which is considerably shorter. You don't really need wings, do you? But its length is about 269 feet. That's very close. Uh, just a little bit longer than A340. Its weight um, is maximum weight. Where we go? Here we go. 128 metric tons, which is very close to the A340. 4300. So I thought that was uh, a very nice choice. Uh, great fun looking uh, airplane. The only thing I have against it was that uh, the flight deck uh, is pretty much Boeing. So the pilot's chairs and the bridge uh, have sort of Boeing signature sheepskin covers and the quad throttle quadrants, definitely Boeing style, as are the control yokes, but I'll forgive them that. Uh, oh, yeah, I thought you said like boring. Great. Uh, no, Boeing. Boeing, Boeing. gotcha. Boeing. Boeing. So that's my choice. How about you guys? Well, now, in, in his um, feedback, he says something about the Carillion YT-1300 freighter. Is that Why also LSU's a Star Wars choice. thing? Uh, no, that's, uh, that's. I think that is probably Babylon 5. Oh, okay. Because I, I did not recognize that guessing. at all. Thinking, I don't know what that is. 
Um, I, you know, I don't have a, 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 a huge depth of knowledge when it comes to sci-fi, um, spaceships, uh, fighters, that kind of thing. So I'll just say, um, maybe old kind of old school, the, uh, the original Star Trek, uh, enterprise would be kind of oh, cool. Yes. Um, okay. and then the other one that's kind of a more modern version of that, uh, same sort of show called the, the Orville. Uh, oh, yes. which is, uh, it would be kind of a fun uh, thing maybe to take a whirl in. Very good. Yeah. So that's the only couple that I can think of right off. You a sci-fi man, Dana? I am not. Well, I like sci- sci-fi, but I'm not a big fan good enough to know what I would like. I mean, of course, growing up as a child watching Star Wars, uh, and it's almost, um, cliche, but, uh, the millennial Falcon was always my fave. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, uh, funny enough, he uh, carries on. Uh, it reminds me, someone from the Airplane Geeks was at Disney World a while back, and apparently you can get checked out as a pilot on the Millennium Falcon. Anyone care to be certified on a Carillion YT-1300 freighter? Uh, for me, I think the most fun craft to fly would be the Earth Force Star Fury Space Superiority Fighter. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, he's linking a short video. gives you an overview of them from the channel Space Dock, uh, which I think is a must-see for any sci-fi fans as they cover ships and vehicles from just about any franchise. In the real world, uh, you may or may not have covered this news segment, but uh, we have a new airline in the United States, formerly known as Poxy. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, a Moxie but now unveiled as Breeze Airways. I'm sure I care. Oh, sorry, not sure. I care for the name or the livery, but I do find the concept interesting. If their aim is to serve high-demand secondary markets, I have hopes that there might be a new airline serving my hometown of Midland, Texas. It's a smaller area, but there's been a ton of growth out there to the point that the airlines... Uh, that currently fly there have been increasing their flights and in some cases up gauging their equipment. Southwest, That's what you said. Of course. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I could do with some of that. Um, <laughs> Southwest, of course, already flies mainline jets in, but American and United usually fly CRJs in. But we're seeing the occasional 737 or A320 showing up there. Anyway, that's all for now. Talk to you all another time. This is the Texas, Texas and LaShock signing off. Excellent. Good, good piece. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something. Oh, we know somebody. He was talking about that uh, the Disney thing where you can uh, log some time on the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. We know somebody the somewhat sort of prominent in the uh, APG community, Stephen Ivey, uh, oh, that uh, just logged some time. Uh, he's He's been on a little bit of a vacation out in California, and I think he went to Disneyland and logged some time. In, so he has some Millennium Falcon time in his logbook. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> sure it's brilliant, wouldn't it? You just got to um, do that. <laughs> that's funny. Okay. Um, Did he do the Kessel Run in 12 past six, I have to ask myself? I don't know. I have oh. no idea what that means. Um <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to decide. I, yeah, I think we can knock this one out. Um, number nine from Derek. He says, "Hello, everyone. 
uh, here, uh, Derek here from the UK. I'm sure you've seen some of the YouTube clips of the recent crosswind landings when Storm Kira, or some people pronounce it Sierra, but I think uh, it's an Irish name, and uh, I know somebody who named their daughter Kira, and that's at least the way they pronounced it, uh, passed through Northern Europe on Sunday, the 9th of January. Some planes took three or four attempts to land at airports around Europe, and in some cases, some aircraft even totally aborted and returned to their original place of departure. I'm curious as to how these pilots and airlines plan for this. The storm that was the worst in the UK for years was well predicted days in advance, and many other forms of public transport were canceled 24 hours beforehand. Now I know I don't. Uh, now I know I don't know how to fly an airliner, and I have the utmost respect for the pilots. But to me, there must be a safety limit, and I was surprised they did not completely shut the airports affected down. I think. Uh, let's see, 50% of flights were canceled, so why some and not others? To me, the risk was far too high, but I'm sure they would not attempt the landings if it was that dangerous. If I was one of those plane, if I was on one of those planes, I would certainly be praying. I wanted your views on this. Thank you all for the amazing show. I've been listening now since episode 77. Woo, that's a long time. And uh, always look forward to it. And so, of course, he has a bunch of um, links for us to look at uh, regarding this incident. And I'm sure that most of the people that listen to aviation podcasts have already seen a clip of this um, uh, Etihad A380 coming in for landing at Heathrow uh, during Storm Kira. And it is an interesting um, landing, I'd say. Um, Now, for me, I've always thought, that uh, when looking at videos of this sort of thing, and I I understand that, uh, what what's the uh, effect called again, Nick? When you um, are are taking a telephoto shot from quite a distance and oh, foreshortening, foreshortening. So I think that has probably something to do with how crazy some of these landings look and the, the crab angles that they're coming in on, and what happens as soon as they touch down and the uh, fuselage or basically the landing gear aligns the fuselage with the longitudinal access of the runway and that sort of thing. I'm sure that's part of it. Uh, but um, I've always kind of been amazed that uh, some people don't even make any attempt whatsoever to try to straighten out the fuselage before touchdown. And I mean, we've had this discussion on the show before where I found some um, information from Boeing that basically said that the airplanes were designed to or are stressed, the landing gear stressed so that uh, they can land in up to the fully the the demonst- the maximum demonstrated crosswind, and without taking out any of the crab angle. And ex- they said ex- except for their Boeing, I mean their uh, Long Beach products. So in other words, the the McDonnell Douglas products uh, they can't <laughs> vouch for. Because they weren't, they yeah, obviously the, didn't make them. Yeah, the wheels are going to fall off those ones. Right, probably so. So anyway, um, we do have some tweets from Captain Dave, who is a uh, an Airbus A380 pilot. He says, pardon me if I'm a little careful in what I say. Firstly, everyone was safe. This is not the normal technique for landing an A380, uh, as the sideways crab should be removed using rudder before touchdown. So I'm glad that I, I saw that from him. Not doing so causes the large swing after touchdown, but everyone was safe. Um, he goes on to say the correct technique is to remove the drift on all landings before touchdown. The undercarriage is designed to cope with that not happening, but landing with the crab still on is is not the correct technique. 
Secondly, all airlines train um, the techniques for, for maneuvers such as this in the way the aircraft manufacturers specify. Each airline may modify certain procedures to fit in with their standard operating procedures, but not basic techniques such as landing, etc. Uh, so that's what he has to say from the outfit that he flies for. Again, that's Captain Dave on Twitter. Um, another thing that um, I saw out there that I thought was kind of interesting, um, the, the title of the article from, uh, let's see, where was this from? Oh, shoot. I don't remember exactly where I got this. Um, I think it was another tweet. Yeah, that's another tweet. Okay. Um, and it says, ouch, Etihad criticizes A380 pilots for a viral crosswind landing. Oh, one from One Mile at a Time blog. I even put it in there. I didn't see it. Um, many of you probably have seen the viral video of an Etihad uh, 380 landing at Heathrow during Storm Dennis. Oh, wait. No, I think he's wrong about that. Wasn't it Kira? Or was it Dennis? I thought it was Kira. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, there have been tons of crosswind landing videos that have emerged as a result of the strong winds in the UK, though this one went most viral. Interestingly, the video doesn't show that much of a struggle to get the to the touchdown point, but what makes this video so shocking to people is the angle at which the plane touches down and the extent to which it makes adjustments after landing. And then it, he gives a link to the video. Almost across the board, you see praise for these pilots for the landing. Yeah, on Twitter. Well, Etihad seems to disagree. Um, let's see. Paddle your own canoe. I guess that's uh, somebody's Twitter handle. Notes the contents of a leaked memo that was sent out by Etihad's pilot training department to pilots following this video going viral. Actually, I believe this was meant for training pilots at Etihad, not all their pilot group. The memo was sent out uh, by Etihad's manager of pilot training. Uh, the memo references, quote, a video this week of one of our A380s landing in a strong crosswind in, crosswind in London and states the following with regards to it, quote, this official view from the training department is a simple one, and in, in all caps, this is not what we want to see. There is a time to give an approach away in the interest of safety. And so I suppose that he means, in other words, uh, go around and try it again. Yep. It, if you see such a thing in the, in the sim, aircraft simulator, that would be a grade one for both pilots. So I'm assuming that grade one must mean the lowest grade, Nick? Yeah, it would be the other way around in my outfit. Yeah, so I think I'll grade one up again. Woo! Yeah, I know. I think, woo! Yes. Uh, so I, I, I gather from the context that it's not a very good thing. Uh, and it says, "Please, gentlemen, let's teach our pilots to operate safely, even if that means changing the mission." And then this guy goes now, on. I to can say, see why that would be a Boeing guy because they might have a combined training apartment with pilots from uh, all fleets. Mm -hmm. uh, and or it might have been written by the Airbus training guys, but uh, just released by whoever's the head of training, which could well be a Boeing pilot. Yeah, so that I, I kind of let that part out of the uh, reading this. Yeah, uh, I don't so, to read anything yeah the, the memo was sent out by Eddie Hodd's manager of pilot training for the Boeing fleet, which seems odd. The plane in question is an Airbus. So the, that yeah. straightens it out, uh, Nick. Thank you. Um, anyway, um, Ouch. Beyond that, I also find it inappropriate that he refers to pilots as gentlemen. Come on, you should know better than that. And then I said, well, I don't think that this was sent out to the entire pilot group. I think it was just sent out to the to the pilots that are in the training department. And at Etihad, that might be just males. That's what I'm guessing. Anyway, yeah. I don't think we should get too upset about that. 
I'm going to point out that on the 340, our training manual said we had to take out at least 50% of the drift. So I, I, mean, I tried, like, tried to take out as much as possible. But if it was a really bad wind and you had a lot of drift to kick off, the aircraft takes considerable amount of time to bring the nose around. And if you got at least half of it around, then I was content that that was you know, going to be okay on the gear. Uh, but no, I, you, you're right. When you, particularly if it's a dry runway, if you land fully crabbed, the airplane does lurch horribly and it feels very uncomfortable. Uh, and as we know, our job is not only to make fly the airplane safely, to make as comfortable uh, for our passengers as we can. So I would also have criticized that technique because once the airplane went down, it lurched about on the runway quite horribly. Yes, it did. And, you know, you have to also point out that uh, it's a little bit more difficult uh, for airplanes such as the A340, the 330, the 380, the 76777, all airplanes that have wing-mounted engines. Uh, it's critical that, you know, to compensate for that drift, once you take out some of that crab, you're going to have to put some bank in. And you have to be careful because you could uh, smack one of those engine cowlings. Yeah, we, we don't we don't teach that at all. Okay. So the no, idea no is to no. Okay. The idea is to if you're going to kick off trip uh, to start on the upwind side of the runway. Okay. So that having straightened the airplane up as the airplane starts to slide across in in the crosswind. Now it's got a grip of you. You land on the on the center line, which was why I was making comments the other day about a, a guy saying what a perfect crosswind landing. I was saying no, he yeah. he was a perfect the cockpit was on the center line you don't want the cockpit on the center line on a severe crosswind you want the cockpit in some cases on the a340 which is a very long airplane nearly over the grass right. on the upwind side right and as you swing the airplane straight the cockwind cockpit will come around and then as the airplane drifts before you get the wheels on you'll still have plenty of runway laterally to put it down on yeah, now for an airplane such as the one Dana and I fly, we can we can put in some bank. Although we do have to, uh, there's a limit to that because we then uh, we we don't have to worry about hitting the engine pod on the wing, but we do have to worry about hitting the wing tip. And there's right. a certain uh, pitch angle and bank angle uh, combination. Uh, de again, depending on your pitch angle when you touch down, where that may happen. So you know you can't be you have to think about that when you're when you're landing in a very strong crosswind but my i guess my point about all of this is that i always kind of uh marvel at non pilots especially non airline pilots their comments oh that was that, that was the best landing i've ever seen in my life and then most of us go no that was not a good <laughs> landing at all yeah. that was horrible um yeah. and they they're so they're heroes that they were able to let no no I mean, the guy didn't even, or the person flying that airplane did, seems that they made no attempt whatsoever to take out any of the crab before touchdown, you know, at least try to take a little bit out, right? Liz put, um, added a uh, YouTube video um, at the last minute, uh, which you'll be able to see in the show notes. Uh, there's a, uh, on these airplanes, I don't know if they're on all the A380s or just Etihad's, I think probably all of them. There's a camera on the tail. You had one too, didn't you, uh, Nick, on the 340? Yeah, on the 340, but not every airline pipes it into the okay. passenger's entertainment system. So this person, apparently, uh, Etihad does, and this guy was in the airplane uh, initially taking um, video from outside the side window on the left side, and then he kind of points his camera as they get closer and closer to touchdown, 
to the uh, tail-mounted uh, view, uh, uh, tail-mounted ca- camera view. And honestly, I have to say that when I saw it from that perspective, it didn't look as bad as it did on the video that everybody was going crazy in the, the video that went viral with the, the head-on view from quite a distance. It was much more, um, I don't know, shocking to me, that view. But the, the tail-mounted camera view, I'm thinking, well, there wasn't as much crab as I thought, and it doesn't look like it was that violent of a straightening after the thing touched down. But again, maybe there are some things in that video that take out the severity or whatever of the, of the landing itself. Did, were you able to see that, Nick? The, uh, tail yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, I must admit, I look, thought it did look quite benign, but there were actually a few exclamations in the background from the passengers. So I don't <laughs> think, yeah. And I think from the outside view, you did see the, wings flex and the airplane twist as uh, the airframe absorbed all that energy mm-hmm. and that's what made it look a bit ugly from the outside i think probably on the inside with you know 200 odd 300 tons or, you know it's not gonna you know feel that bad perhaps big right. airplane yeah so uh yeah basically um bottom line uh they it wasn't a textbook landing and the you know, conditions were tough, but um, you know it was it was a, a, a enough concern that even the training, if the memo was actually real that we're talking about here, um, it got it, it was of some concern from certain people in the airline and at least one professional uh, 380 airline pilot that has a very popular uh, Twitter uh, feed. So there you go. So thank you, uh, Derek, for. Mentioning it, mentioning it, and I think... Uh, and, of course, we have a 380 captain, Stefan, who's a regular. Yes. And uh, he might want to just fire up some feedback at us, Stefan, if you get yes, to Yes, Stefan, fire it up, send it in, and um, go ahead and throw in a bottle or two of gin soul with, uh, <laughs> yes. with that as well, if you don't mind. You'll be sure to get your feedback. I'm, I'm out. I'm looking at my <laughs> bottle over here, and it's, it's empty. I'm going to Hamburg in a couple of weeks. I'm going to buy some. Please do Ooh. buy a whole case. All right. Um, and then I'll, I'll make a visit. Well, sure. <laughs> okay. Now it's time for the best part of the show, which of course everybody knows is the old pilot's plain tale. And here we go. This one is Buckeye two. The old pilot's plain tales. Buckeye two. VA-859 was called to active duty in 1951. For those not familiar with the US Navy, the designation VA refers to the unit's role as a fixed-wing attack squadron. A little while later, it was designated Attack Squadron 85, and it served with great distinction for 43 years, fighting in the Vietnam and Iraq wars, as well as other important duties, such as covering U.S. marine landings in Lebanon and carrying out airstrikes over Syria, Bosnia and Libya, to name just a few. The squadron initially flew Sky Raiders, but in 1954 it had moved on to the extremely capable A-6 Intruder. On its aircraft's tails, it bore the squadron's insignia, a black falcon. The 85th's illustrious history had its fair share of heroes, but one of its members was awarded the Navy Cross. 
the United States' second highest decoration for valor in combat and awarded for extraordinary heroism. Only the Medal of Honor has precedence over this award. This is the story. The A-6 flew some of the most challenging missions going in Vietnam. The nature of the intruder and its role, flying low-altitude attacks in foul conditions and often alone, led to what had been described as an A-6 particular loss, where no one could truly establish the circumstances and there was a disproportionate number of A-6 crews on the missing in action list. When the Black Falcons entered the fray aboard USS Kitty Hawk in 1964, this was their very first deployment with the intruder. The Buckeyes, as they were also known, got off to a troubled start with their new aircraft whilst converting in California, with the loss of two intruders in a mid-air collision. Although they were not yet to know it, they were going to suffer more losses. Their CO was killed during a night strike north of Haiphong, along with his BN, his bombardier navigator. And only a couple of months later, another aircraft failed to return after attacking a group of trucks. Then a third machine was destroyed when it was hit by AAA, but at least the crew were found and rescued. The squadron had their successes as well, but the losses would continue when four months after the CO had been killed, his replacement died during a night strike near Vinh. This made the second CO that they had lost on this deployment and the third since they had started flying the A-6. The following day, another aircraft went down on an anti-SAM mission, and then it was the turn of the new CO to get airborne in Buckeye 1 with Lieutenants Bill Westerman, pilot, and Brian Westin, BN, in Buckeye 2 on his wing. They were scheduled for a reconnaissance flight down a road in Route Package 2. A route package was the name given to describe one of seven numbered areas in North Vietnam that were used to deconflict between air operations being conducted by different arms of the US military. Out of interest, RP-6 was considered the most dangerous airspace in the world. It covered both Hanoi and Haiphong. When the air war started, the entire North Vietnamese air defence system contained only 22 early warning radars and four fire control radars with 700 anti-aircraft guns. By 1967-68, North Vietnam was firing 25,000 tonnes of anti-aircraft ammunition a month and their equipment had grown to 400 radar sites, over 8,000 anti-aircraft guns, 150 fighters and 200 SA-2 surface-to-air missile sites around the country. Buckeye 1 and 2 were to be armed with Mark 82 500-pound bombs, but just before they manned their aircraft, the ship received a report that a mass of barges had been discovered near the mouth of the Venn River. The staff of Carrier Task Force 77, apparently short of officers experienced in TAC Air, tactical aviation, changed the formation's weapon load to napalm and ordered them to attack the barges. The A-6 crews were delighted with the new target, but screened blue murder about the change in weapons, but to no avail. 
the crew were rightfully concerned because in those days napalm had to be dropped from low altitude and airspeed to successfully detonate. This was going to make them vulnerable. They climbed aboard their aircraft, started and taxied the short distance out to the catapult launcher. In turn they lined up, the hold bar was put in place and the bridle connected to the aircraft. Below the deck, the steam pressure built behind the huge piston connected to the shuttle in the track in front of the intruder. With their Pratt & Whitney J-52 turbojets blowing 18,000 pounds of thrust into the blast screen, the crew saluted and prepared for the launch. When the moment came, the aircraft took just 250 feet to accelerate to 140 knots and then they were off the deck and climbing away. Once they reached their rendezvous point, they prepared to head for the target. There was just one little snag. In Buckeye 2, every time Brian, the BN, tried to talk to his pilot on the intercom, he also transmitted on the radio. It was only considered a minor annoyance, so they turned towards the enemy. The two intruders had briefed an attack that had the lead going in first, followed by his number two in loose trail, making an independent run. It didn't take long to get to the target. It was only two or three miles inland, and the barges were there, ripe for destruction. Buckeye One made his pass, and the napalm canisters tumbled off his aircraft down towards the mass of boats. When they hit, the sticky fuel burst out into a vast cloud, and then the ignition charge fired, creating a huge fireball that engulfed the target, setting much of it alight. Bill Westerman lined his A6 up with the barges. There was no missing the location. The fireball in front, which marked the target, was slowly shrinking as he descended down to his release height. The water of the delta glistened below as he rushed over the mud banks and swampy vegetation. He began to line his sights up on the target when there was a loud bang from the front of the aircraft and Bill felt a blow to his shoulder. He instinctively pulled back on the stick and Brian beside him keyed his intercom and shouted, Are you hit? His words came out on the radio as well and for a moment the lead aircraft thought that he was talking to them. Just as they were about to reply, they heard the mayday call. Bill was trying to fly his aircraft, and Brian was telling him to stay down out of the danger height for Sam's, but Bill was in trouble. He was feeling nauseous, and then things began to go dark. In the A6, the pilot and his BN sit side by side, with the pilot on the left, but there was only one set of flying controls. Brian, the BN, sat a little below his pilot on the right, and in front of him were the sophisticated weapon controls and the synthetic radar terrain display that he needed to do his job. The one thing he didn't have were any flying controls. As Brian slumped, Bill reached over and grabbed the stick, he wasn't trained to fly the aircraft, but he knew enough to keep them airborne, even though he was flying by leaning across the cockpit. He put out a mayday call, and then clumsily turned the intruder out towards the Tonkin Gulf. 
in a field behind them, near the barges, a farmer lowered his old 303 rifle. He had fired a couple of times at the attacking A6s, but had no idea if he had hit them. He was pleased, though, when they veered away. He slung his rifle back over his shoulder and went on with his work. What he didn't know was that one of his rounds had been right on target. The bullet hit the lower left corner of Buckeye 2's canopy and penetrated. It would have probably been a clean wound, but the round shattered against one of Bill Westerman's Koch fasteners that connected his body harness to his parachute. The bullet debris ripped the left side of Bill's chest open behind his armpit, glanced off his ribs, barely missing his heart and leaving his arm and hand unusable. Bright red blood sprayed from the wound all over the cockpit and his vision blurred and then narrowed whilst waves of pain flowed through his body. Wiping the blood from his face and seeing his pilot going in and out of consciousness, Brian kept the aircraft under control. He remembered the little bottle of flight surgeon's brandy in his nap bag and grabbing it he broke it open and after feeding it to Bill revived him enough to get his attention. The closest airfield was Da Nang but flying that far was out of the question as was landing back on the Kitty Hawk. Brian could see that Bill wasn't going to last long without serious medical help The shock was setting in. Their only option was to abandon the aircraft, but at that time the A6 didn't have command eject, and it was usually the BN's job to eject first. Bill ordered him out, but Brian refused. He didn't want Bill to fall unconscious while on his own in the aircraft, so he insisted that the pilot go first. In the meantime, Buckeye 1 was racing up towards their stricken wingman, and as they approached, they watched the canopy come flying off the A6, shortly followed by an ejector seat. It was like the intruder stopped in mid-air, and Buckeye 1 sailed past. After the violence of Bill's ejection, and with the slipstream buffeting him, Brian tried to get the A6 back under control. He eventually gave up, and with the aircraft descending through a thousand feet, he pulled his ejector seat handle. He was immediately hit by the 18G force of the main seat gun firing, and within a second or two he was gently floating down towards the water beneath his parachute. Buckeye 1 had turned back hard to find their wingman. They had only seen one ejection, and spotting only one dinghy not far from the impact point made when Buckeye 2 hit the water, they assumed that Bill hadn't made it. By now, a flight of rescue caps, spads, sky raiders that is, arrived to relieve Buckeye 1 who turned towards the carrier. The spads began doing their job. They tried mustering help for the downed crew and a VIP configured SH3 seeking helicopter which had been monitoring the search and rescue frequency responded immediately. Tuning their ADF box to 282.8 they followed the needle as they descended down towards the crash site. After just a few minutes, they hove into view, and spying Brian's green sea dye marker and his orange dinghy, they circled, 
went into a hover and dropped a strop down to him. As soon as he was dragged into the helicopter, Brian shucked his cumbersome water wings and made a beeline for the cockpit. Shouting over the noise, he told the crew that his wounded pilot had ejected first and was in the water a few miles closer to the coast. Hearing the news, the spad started searching, but spotting the pilot wasn't going to be easy. The leader was coming up to the mudbanks in the estuary when he thought someone was shooting at him as a tracer round flashed past his nose. He dropped his wings and looked down into the eyes of Bill Westerman, who was floating in red-stained water beneath him. Frustrated by all the aerial activity within a few miles, Bill had managed to use his one good arm to lever his pencil-sized flare gun out and carefully screw a mini-flare onto the top. As soon as someone came close, he took aim and fired, nearly hitting the spad. Soon the Sea King was over the spot, and they lowered the strop, but it quickly became obvious that the injured pilot couldn't climb into it. The VIP helicopter had no swimmer on board to help, so without a moment's thought, Brian jumped back into the water. He unhooked the horse collar that Bill couldn't use, which promptly sank, and then used the hook to attach Bill's harness to the wire. Within moments, the now unconscious pilot was safely aboard and the wire came back down, but since Brian had shucked off his harness earlier, he had no way of attaching himself to it. He knew Bill needed medical help soon, so he waved the helicopter away and was soon alone in the water again. Treading water and watching the fins of sharks attracted by Bill's blood circle around, he had a chance to ponder his impulsive actions. Brian was tiring and finding it hard to keep his head up, but then he remembered some wise words from his survival training officer, and he reached down to undo his G-suit. Once he got it off, he blew into the hose and inflated it enough to keep his head above water, and just as importantly, with all the sharks around, his legs up. In the nick of time, a UH-2 Sea Sprite search-and-rescue helicopter arrived on the scene and the Spads gratefully turned the rescue of the poor BN over to them. They were just in time, as the sharks weren't the only threat. Hostile boats were closing in fast and it was with a sigh of relief that Brian Westin was hauled up into the helicopter cabin. Although it was touch-and-go, the injured pilot, Bill Westerman, survived and went on to have a distinguished Navy career. Apart from his Purple Heart, he was awarded two Distinguished Flying Crosses and six Air Medals. His Navy tours of duty included the aircraft carriers Forrestal, Independence, Kitty Hawk, John F. Kennedy and Dwight D. Eisenhower, from which he flew the A-4, A-6, F-4, F-14, F-18 and S-3. He rose to the rank of captain and after his service worked for McDonnell Douglas and Boeing. In 2006, he was inducted into the Golden Eagles, the 
Naval Aviation Association, which he considered his highest honour. He passed away in 2010. For his actions during the Vietnam War, Brian Westin was awarded the Navy Cross. Part of his citation states, Lieutenant Junior Grade Westin waved the helicopter off and remained in the shark-infested water until the arrival of a second rescue helicopter. Through his quick thinking, cool courage and selflessness in the face of grave personal risk, he was directly responsible for saving the life of his pilot. His heroic efforts were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. Another fantastic plain tale. Wow, what a story. And talking about dedication and loyalty to your fellow soldier. Oh, absolutely. I think it was an absolutely fabulous uh, story. And thanks very much indeed to Blaster Bill, who was kind enough to point me at the direction of that one. And uh, I don't know an awful lot about naval flying, uh, even though I've flown two uh, fighters that were primarily uh, carrier base, so uh, the F-4 and the uh, F-18. Um, you know, the, it was it's a bit of a mystery to me uh, what happens on board a carrier. So I was uh, reliant very much on uh, some uh, very uh, good recollections from Navy pilots and also some assistance from some friends of Blasterville who were able to check my facts. So thanks very much for that. But that's a fabulous story, isn't it? Uh, it really is good. Uh, I, I love the fact that uh, uh, this fine uh, chap was happy to uh, jump it back into the water, having been rescued once, mm -hmm. to put himself back in harm's way to uh, save his pilot. What a marvelous chap he is. Yes, very much so. Oh, right. Well, um, well done, sir. And uh, look forward to the next installment. Yeah, next one's almost written. Oh, uh, uh, that's great. I was going to say, I don't have any um, naval flying experience either. Naval gazing experience, yes. But not, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and funny enough, actually, I'm, uh, I'm sticking on a naval theme because uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the F-14 and a bit of Top Gun uh, stuff on the next one. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Look forward to that. Uh, let's see. How about um, item 10? And uh, Nick, I think that this would be a good one for you. Yeah, I think so too. It's an Airbus news story. So yeah. I'm always up for a bit of that. Uh, and it's from uh, one of our patrons, uh, Aaron Kiefer, uh, who's a pi private ASEL and glider pilot. Uh, working on his instrument rating, so good luck there. So he says, hey, team, I would like to know what you think. Is this just an out-there idea that unlikely will ever come to fruition, or is this potentially the first glimpse into real airliners of the future? As it appears, Airbus is putting real research into that, and he points us at the uh, an Airbus article uh, saying Airbus uh, – well, it's actually from uh, Reuters, or Reuters, I should say, uh, from Singapore. And Airbus unveils the blended wing body plane design after secret test flights. Apparently uh, on Tuesday, it doesn't say which Tuesday, so I'll have to try and work oh, that out. Oh, you know, Tuesday. 
Uh, yeah, that, that day after Monday. Mm -hmm. uh, they unveiled a curvaceous aircraft design. Ooh. Well, we like curvaceous. Uh, it's almost as nice as moist. Uh, that blends wing and body, designed to slash carbon emissions by some 20%. Now, that would be an impressive feat. Uh, the European plane maker has been carrying out test flights of a 3.2 meter wide, that's about 10 and a half feet for those of you who are in the dark ages. Um, technology demonstrator, uh -huh. code, <laughs> code named with my next plane tail in mind, Maverick, at a secret location in central France since last year. It lifted the veil on the design at the Singapore Air Show. So the concept of a blended wing body design has been around since the 40s and led to the US B-2 bomber as well as the X-48 research product project between Boeing and NASA a decade ago. Such aircraft are complex to control. Well, I'm not so sure, since the flight control system would probably be very similar to that of Concorde and uh, the Vulcan V-bomber, which uh, was flying around, and a lot of Mirages and other Deltas. Um, anyway, um, blah, 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 complex to produce, uh, sorry, to control, but produce less aerodynamic drag, making them more efficient to fly, I suspect. Most of the aerodynamic drag uh, efficiency comes from the lack of interference drag. Anytime you get uh, two surfaces on an aircraft meeting at a sharp angle, the airflow over between the two of them where they join will create a lot of interference drag and create vortices and uh, be a pull on the aircraft. Now, blended body is incredibly smooth about the only places you'll get interference drag are from where the fins join on the back of the fuselage as they jut out at right angles. And that's where they stuck the engines on this thing, which seems a clever idea. Um, although I guess you could stick them underneath in pylons. But uh, anyway, that's where they put them on this model. Um, Plane makers are revisiting such designs as the passenger jet industry tries to commit to more environmentally friendly aircraft. Uh, and this is from uh, Airbus. So, uh, v uh, I'm going to do a German accent there. No, I'm trying to think of a French accent. Oh, ho, ho, ho. We believe it's high time now to push the technology further and study what it brings to us. Uh, jean Bryce Dumont, Executive Vice President of Engineering at Airbus, told reporters, uh, we need these disruptive technologies to meet our environmental challenge. I'm not quite sure why he said disruptive, disruptive technologies. Doesn't make sense to me. Uh, it is the next generation of aircraft. We are studying an option. So he's obviously having a think about it. Great accent. It was too Great early. Accent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Uh, he said it was too early to say whether such shapes could contribute to the next generation of medium-haul planes expected in the 2030s, but I don't see why not. Uh, since the previous generation of test tests, aerospace has seen improvements in materials that make such aircraft lighter and computing power has increased, improving flight controls, uh, Dumont said. Yeah, and the whole aircraft design that allows them to conjure these fantastic shapes is so much simpler that they can use the vast computing power available to them. And Airbus is studying how the cabin would work and how the aircraft would be integrated into airports. Well, I 
can't see a problem really of integrating it uh, when you've got a, a big blended body like that most of the lift comes from it doesn't have a huge wingspan so it's going to fit it i guess it's just a case of where do you stick the um the jetway <laughs> yeah. um so they can make the aircraft lighter and um they're just one Apparently, the one unresolved question is whether such a plane would have windows or use video screens to give passengers a sense of their surroundings. Well, I think from our experience, particularly those of us uh, from the wide-body world, the vast majority of passengers have no interest in their outside surroundings. So having a windowless airplane would only upset the ab geeks. uh, Right. Yeah, I, I think they will probably just enjoy being in the cutting edge of technology if they uh, um, got to fly in one of those. Um, Another issue that has dogged such experiments in the past is how to handle sensations of movement. Because passengers will be sitting further out from the center of the aircraft compared to the classic tube and wings model, they would move further when the aircraft turns. Rival Boeing to put more weight on a potential cargo roll. Well, yeah, I do see the point because it's got a big, wide fuselage, and when the aircraft rolls, if you're sitting on the edge of the aircraft, you'll actually feel the aircraft, that you're part of the cabin going up and down as the aircraft rolls. But I think if so long as you, you don't get any uh, ex-fighter pilots uh, whacking the bank on too hard, I think that would be a sensation that most passengers would be able to cope with without too many problems. So I, I'm quite excited about this. I, I see it as being practical. I think biggest problem is getting uh, autoclaves large enough to uh, cook all the uh, carbon fiber technology that you'd need to create this enormous thing if you're going to build it out of carbon fiber, and it looks like a lot of it will be. Um, and uh, it has potential. I don't see it being a problem at all. I think the cockpit window is a bit big, though. Yeah, they seem to be. Uh, maybe it's just because that's the scale the model, model <laughs> yes. whatever. No. Yes, I think so. But I, I'm, I'm, I'd be quite excited to see this, and I see absolutely no reason why it, uh, it couldn't be flying uh, in the next um, decade or so. It will be interesting if they do. And mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the uh, you know the spreading wide the uh, passenger uh, distribution in the in the co- or, uh, in the cabin, um, they'll, they'll just have to do something to. Uh, Reduce the roll rates, maybe, uh, as you mentioned, you know, as long as you're not really racking it, the thing up. And I would imagine that the con- the computer-controlled system would probably uh, kick in and keep your roll rate uh, a low level so you wouldn't have that bad sensation. Yeah, for the one pilot that it'll have. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or if they have a pilot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've just got a, a computer systems operator. Yeah. No, I see a lot of potential in it, and uh, you know, I think it'd be a fun thing to fly in. I don't see why yeah. not. Very good, very good. Thank you, uh, sir. Uh, item eleven from Private Pilot Rolo. He says, uh, "Private Pilot Rolo here. Uh, just returned from a trip out in Swamp City, USA, and he was referring to New Orleans, Louisiana. I was out there for some training with my reserve unit just outside the city. My girlfriend Andrea, whom you all met at Oshkosh last year." Flew out there to spend some time with me and take in some of the sights the Big Easy has to offer. Like true av geeks, we couldn't leave the area without visiting the site of the miraculous landing spot of Taka Flight 110 in 1988. 
Andrea is Salvadorian, so she knew of Captain Dardano her entire life, being that he is a well-known public figure in their native El Salvador. However, unlikely, however, unlike, uh, let me try that again. However, unluck, unlike my highly aviation-cultured better half, I learned of this event only after listening to Captain Nick's plane tale, The Dead Stick, back in 2018. That's also the nickname we give Captain Nick. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> after a quick Google search, we found the co- <laughs> After a quick Google search, we found the coordinates of where the plane landed and drove out toward the site. As we approached, we drove over Green Bridge and were able to capture a picture of the grass strip adjacent to the levee. We drove into the Coast Guard base next to the NASA facility with my military ID, but once on base, we couldn't get close enough to get a better view of the levee. Unfortunately, the best view we got was from Green Bridge on our drive-in. Nevertheless, it was a pretty awesome experience to have been able to visit the site of this incredible event, which took place five days before I was born. I've attached a picture of the grass strip as viewed from the bridge. I apologize for the quality of the picture, but I thought it'd be, an, it, it'd be a neat experience to share with the ABG community. Stay tuned for another feedback in the near future. Until then, wishing Captains Jeff and Dana endless coal for the Mad Dog. <laughs> Happy cloud surfing for Dr. Steph on all her world travels and endless scotch to the old pilot. Cheers. Oh, endless scotch. That sounds lovely. I'll die of liver disease in a month. <laughs> uh, he, so as he mentions, he sent a uh, picture that he took from the bridge uh, going over toward the uh, Coast Guard base. And he actually has helped us in, in, in taking some red highlighter or red marker and uh, circled the uh, the levee on which these uh, Taka uh, 737 landed. That's pretty neat. I've not seen that myself in person. Anyway, um, thank you, Private Pilot Rollo, for sending us that. That was cool. Yeah, that was very kind of him. I was hoping that they might have actually acknowledged uh, the feat that occurred there with a historic plaque or yeah, you'd something think so. like that, but apparently not. Nope. So oh. Don't forget about it, guys. It was a marvelous piece of flying and deserves remembering. Nothing to see here. Move along. <laughs> it didn't yes. happen. It didn't happen. No, there wasn't a 737 sitting right there on that bit of grass. <laughs> <laughs> um, item 15. Dana, you want to take this one? Sure. I'm ready. Okay. All right. Hello, Jet Captain Jeff. I am a fairly new addicted patron to your podcast. I'm an aviation freak and live in a suburb about five miles east of O'Hare's 27 Center and 27 Left runways. I am a terrified passenger once I get on an aircraft, but I love aviation just as much as I love my own mother, wife, and child. That's a pretty, pretty bold statement there, Joe, actually. Uh, planes and flights, especially as I have the daily, more like minutely opportunity to see them as and uh, see them are just are inspiring to me. In my younger years, I inspired to be an airline pilot, but a, a few really bad flights as a passenger, obviously flew on Nick's airplane, uh, broke my world mm-hmm. pursuing that dream. I'm only kidding, Nick. Once upon a time, as a young man, I was fortunate enough to work as a ticket ramp agent at the Dothan Re- Regional Airport, KDHN. 
which at, at its peak during my tenure had air services such as Northwest Airlink, which only operated Saab 340 aircraft to Columbus, Georgia, and Memphis. And ASA at the time operated seven flights a day to Atlanta on either the Embraer 120 or the ATR 72, which uh, they were the big boys on the block. I was eventually laid off by Northwest Airlink and eventually became a member of the ASA team. Shortly, I was hired. I, they operated the CRJ-200 to Dothan and once in a while the 700, CRJ-700, along with the ATR after retiring to Brasilia. Uh, through my travels, I have had the privilege to work in Dothan, Montgomery, Alabama, Fort Walton Beach, and Old Panama City Florida Airport, uh, PFN. I'm not sure what the new airport is referred to now, and ECP is actually the code for that now. Em- Emerald Coast, Panama City. Yep, Emerald Coast. That's exactly correct. Um, anyways, uh, what was I? Uh, during my time at Fort Walton, I had my first chance to load baggage on an MD-88, and I thought, when I look back on that, those were the best days of my working life. Mainline Delta, in my opinion, is the best airline and the only airline I fly to this day. I felt so much pride in being trusted and being inside the cargo hole for the first time put me in a complete awe as I thought standing next to my favorite athlete. With that being said, I decided not to become a pilot because of my fear of flying, even though I am an aviation enthusiast. I became a police officer instead. We know somebody like that up in Wisconsin, don't we? Huh. I love your podcast, and I look forward to every new episode. Uh, if I'm, uh, if you ever find yourself within over, you know, here overnight, I'd love to be a part of the meetups and with the APG community. I love the podcast and can, can't wait to the next one. I can't wait. That's actually wrong there. I love the podcast and can't wait for the next one. By the way, between podcasts, I have gone back and listened to old ones and that I haven't heard since I'm fairly new to the community. Safe travels, Captain Jeff, and keep up the great work. Well, I guess the rest of us are not doing much. No. No, no, no. So, Jeff, and and I agree. Jeff is doing a great job. Hey, Joe and I have a lot in common. I've actually reached out to Joe. Um, We probably have crossed paths uh, because I've flown into all those airports when I was at my former uh, employer, ASA. So uh, I'm I'm 100% positive we've we've bumped elbows or, or said something over over the uh, over the ramp saying hey you know how you doing this morning or whatever else but uh, he sent uh, something yeah, will nice. Yeah, you move will you move your fat ass and drag my airplane out or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get this thing moving. We, we're late. Yeah, what are you Don't doing? Mess what are you with Shut the damn doors. Yeah, slut, load the darn airplane. Will you get it done? Already? Get a job. Don't, don't you know how to marshal an airplane? <laughs> Set the parking brake. Do you know what that signal is? No, I'm only kidding, Joe. Listen, it, it, it pleasure um, conversing back and forth with you. Thank you for what you do. Uh, you know, being a police officer is a noble profession, and I have no idea why you want to listen to the show because we, you know, we, we don't know what we're talking about. At least fifty percent of the time we do, though. Yeah. But anyways, uh, thank you for writing in. Absolutely. All righty. Thank you, Dana, and thank, thank you, Jeff. Joe, for the feedback. And uh, let's see, we're getting close to the end of the show here. Let's go with item 16. And this is from Tracy, another just a navigator. Greetings, Jeff and APG crew. This is Tracy from Portland, Oregon. 
like some of your well-known listeners, I was just a navigator in my former military life, and, and I'm now a commercial pilot for a government flight department here in Portland. I want to leave some feedback on some recent episodes. First, Captain Nick's plane tale about Dieter Dangler. As a naval aviator, this tale struck close to home. I first learned about Dieter's story from a documentary by fil- uh, famed filmmaker Werner Herzog in a film called Little Dieter Needs to Fly. Uh, it's currently available on Amazon Prime. Highly recommend it for anyone that found that plane tale intriguing. Many more details there than Captain Nick possibly could have fit into his plane tale about Dieter Dangler. And uh, someone wouldn't be disappointed. There was a movie a few years ago called Rescue Dawn in which Christian Bale played Dieter. Uh, but hardly did justice to this guy's uh, uh, true story in life. Secondly, I'd like to comment on the de Havilland Dash 8 Q400 that was mentioned on episode 409. Um, I flew the Dash 8 for about a 1,000 hours as a first officer for Horizon Air in my previous life. And the airplane's a different beast from any other airplane I've flown, even other turboprops. Uh, you typically land with flaps 35, 23% torque, um, which is pretty high power for touchdown and only about two degree no, uh, two degrees nose up in the flare and not uh, holding that power all the way down until the mains touch the, touch the, uh, touch the ground as opposed to the King Air 350, which I currently fly where we typically drop power about 50 feet and land about five degrees nose up, uh, more typical for a lot of different airplanes. Uh, but the dash eight is definitely a very flat sight picture. So I could see where that could be a possibility, depending on how that airline uh, in question trained uh, for that, that that airplane uh, could have possibly landed nose low because it is a very different sight picture. Hope this helps shed some light on some of the recent conversations. As always, I welcome any APG community members uh, for an IPA next time you're in Portland. We only have about 70 breweries in town, so there's no shortage of quality beers to sample that I think will rival anything else found in the country. Tailwinds and main gear landings. Tracy from Portland. So I apologize, apologize, Tracy, if you sent this before I went out to Portland, although I probably wouldn't have had really much of an opportunity to meet up with you, but I was out there in that uh, beautiful city uh, last weekend. And uh, if I'm ever back out there again, I'll uh, make sure that I take my cousin, Craig, and uh, the two of us can join you for some great beer and and portland is one of those cities that i remember back in the early or the first renaissance of craft brewing in our country in the uh, in the 90s that uh, i flew to fairly often and uh, it was like one of the best places in the in the country to uh, experience excellent craft beer and uh so he's ex-Navy. You could have a talk like a pirate night. Oh, we could do that. Oh, arr. 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 <laughs> <laughs> That's the way all those Navy pilots talk. He must Oh, have, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He had to really think about not doing that when he recorded that audio, apparently. <laughs> he did a good job. <laughs> Some interesting stuff, though, that uh, we were wondering about. Yeah. 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 Very, very good. Um, we we kind of surmise that that might be the case with the dash eight as far as the the, the pitch angle uh, for landings. And because it seems like we're seeing more and more of these instances with the nose gear touching down first kind of uh, or collapsing or something uh, kind of issues with that with that airplane. So good stuff. Thank you, sir, for that. All right. Item 17. Um, mm, hi, all. Not a pilot. But I love your podcast. Yeah, a lot of people li- listen to the show, by the way, Dave, are not pilots. I think probably most of the people that listen to our show are not pilots. Anyway, I thought this article was intriguing about the global warming effect of contrails. 
Okay, so he gives us a link to a sciencedaily.com article. And he says, in summary, here are some of the highlights. Contrails and the clouds they help form have as much of a warming impact on the climate as aviation's cumulative CO2 emissions because of an effect known as radiative forcing. Contrails only form in persistent thin layers of the atmosphere that have very high humidity. Because these layers are thin, small changes to flight attitudes would altitudes would mean that aircraft could avoid these regions, leading to fewer contrails forming. Using data from Japan's airspace, they found that just 2% of flights were responsible for 80% of radiation forcing within the airspace. Taking into account the congestion in the aviation above Japan, the team simulated these planes to fly either 2,000 feet higher or lower than their actual flight paths and found that the contrail climate forcing could be cut by 59% by altering the altitudes of 1.7% of flights. Uh, The diversion in flight paths caused less than a tenth of a percent increase in fuel consumption, but the researchers say the reduced contrail formation more than offset the CO2 released by the extra fuel. So, clearly there is no good way to predict the best altitudes in advance, but couldn't each aircraft measure humidity and temperature and give an alert to the pilots? Because you guys don't have rear-view mirrors yet. Then, about 1.7% of the time, the pilots could request a different altitude from ATC. Do you think this is a near-term feasible solution? What problems would you foresee in implementing this? Thanks, Dave Ellison from Palo Alto, California. And uh, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? That doesn't seem to me... I mean, it, it, I think it's a, a simplified solution, very. but I'm not sure it's very practical. I know that there are airplanes yeah. out there that... I know there are airplanes like the B-2. Didn't they say they have some kind of a, and probably a lot of uh, military airplanes that have a way of uh, knowing whether or not they're in the proper. It's called a rear vision mirror. Oh, I was going to say, well, (laughs) but I think think the B-2, they don't have a rear view mirror, so they have some kind of a system on it that can. A camera, I guess. Or maybe a camera. I was going to think, as I was reading this, I'm thinking, why not just put a camera back in the tail and (laughs) point it back and you can see whether or not you're spinning a contrail or not. I don't know. Exactly. I mean, when I was in the Air Force in the, you know, back in the 70s, uh, for years, uh, our Air Force meteorologists had been uh, briefing us daily on the uh, predicted contrail levels. And they would put up, uh, you know, a graph uh, with, um, and it went, uh, you know, no contrails. Then you have a a short area where you would have um, non-persistent contrails. So you'd make one that would be a short duration. And then there'd be a a band of persistent uh, contrails. And if you continue to climb, you go back through a non-persistent area. And then if you got above it all, you'd be in an area with no contrails at all. And if we wanted to get through that band um, without letting anyone see us, we'd try and do it uh, in as near a vertical um, angle as possible. So you'd go, right, well, we need to get up to shoot this guy. Let's pop up, uh, you know, in a steep climb and uh, just try and make our trails as small as possible so the, the technology has been around for years to predict where these trails are of course that only that changes when you're on a big long flight because you're moving from one air mass to another and the conditions in another different air mass will be different to your local conditions so that's not but every country 
could you know, I mean, I think they got most of the information from weather balloons, and they, you know, most air masses. I'm oh, sorry, most countries throw weather balloons, but I'm sure their modern technology is bound to be a weather satellite way of measuring uh, the um, factors they need to predict this. Um, so I don't think it's quite possible that they could predict it, but I am going to really have a problem with the fact that they claim a diversion in flight paths caused less than a tenth a tenth of a percent of increase in fuel consumption. That, I think that's absolute rubbish. Mm-hmm. Um, we were told on our most fuel-efficient aircraft that 1,000 feet was a 1% fuel consumption um, penalty if you went down, slight left you if you went up. And on the four-engine aircraft we flew, it was 1.5% if you went down and slightly uh, less if you went up. And we know from the fact that so many airliners leave contrails and they're flying around at their usually at their optimum flight levels, uh, it uh, coincides with areas where the trails are likely to be. So you're going to get all these airliners flying well outside their optimum cruising level and their fuel consumption, I think, is going to be markedly increased. And if you're only talking about... Um, you know, uh, a, a change of a few percent. I think that's going to be well um, countered by the increase in consumption that you're going to have. And also, of course, the airspace is so busy that if you deny the use of a few thousand feet of prime cruising altitude, the rest of the airspace is going to get very busy and some airliners will be forced well below their best cruising altitude They're thereby putting out much more co2 yeah because of the fuel exactly. increased fuel consumption the other thing i was just thinking about is that once at least here in the u.s above eighteen thousand feet i know it's a different altitude in various countries where we all switch to a standard um altimeter setting um what do we call it the standard datum plane or whatever um and so we're we're instead of changing our altimeters or uh, barometric altimeter settings as we go into different pressures and the air mass, our airplanes are actually you know going up and down um, to keep that constant pressure altitude. And I'm wondering if the if the the areas where contrails form or ideally form, if they are also varying based on pressure or or not. And if that's the case, you know you. You might be in a little segment or a part of the air mass where the where you're not putting out contrails, but as soon as the pressure starts changing, then all of a sudden you may be right back in, uh, you know, the ideal. I think uh, it's primarily a temperature factor, temperature thing and, not a and pressure. of course humidity uh, that has a, a big part to play. Uh, so that's not necessarily, I don't think, going to be linked to pressure. But I do see a point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not like you know, there's just that one altitude, like. 31,000 feet, you know, for a long distance, it's, it might be 31,000 feet for five miles, but then it might switch to 32,000 feet for the next five yeah. miles. So, <laughs> And be- you're going to have all these airliners trying to negotiate different cruising levels to get out of the right. layer, layer they're now trailing in. Uh, and over busy, busy airspace, it's going to be pretty impractical. Well, like Ralph, who also sent in this um, piece of feedback, thank you, Ralph, um, this uh, link to this article, he says, I think that sounds like Bravo Sierra. Well, uh, I think the, the, I think the, the theory is good. Yeah. I mean, uh, if, if you're reflecting, your contrails are creating clouds, 
And although they're deflecting some of the sun's uh, rays above, so they're not getting in down to the Earth's surface, they're trapping an awful lot using the greenhouse effect. You know mm. how the greenhouse works. So heat below. And you're only going to reflect the sun rays when the sun's up, but you're always going to be reflecting heat waves from below 24 hours a day. Yep. Uh, so I can see the, the basic principle, but kind of trying to cut down on the contrails, I think, is going to be tough. Uh, I think uh, the, the it might be electric airplane. It might be the way to yep. do it. That is <laughs> true. Yeah. And yeah. true. D- don't, it's true, but don't hold your breath. It's going to be a long time before we see long haul type of flying with uh, all electrics. But. Uh, you never yeah, know. Maybe, maybe there will be a break, a, a huge breakthrough in technology, and then we'll yeah. look back at the show and say, oh, "Those, those luddites, they had no idea that uh, we'd all be in electric everything." Uh, just a few years down the road. Oh, yeah, very true. Okie doke. Well, that's going to be it uh, for the feedback today and uh, and uh, our show. And this is the point where we say, "Hey, why don't you?" If you are interested in learning more about the Airline Pilot Guy show, head over to our website, airlinepilotguy.com, and you'll find information about the crew and the community, which is the best part of all of this, the community. Uh, We have an APG community calendar where you can see where uh, Dana and I are flying. And if you see that we're going to be in your area, uh, feel free to contact us and set up some kind of a meetup because we always enjoy that. also, uh, merchandise and information about the coffee fund and uh, a separate standalone plain tale page where you, you can find information how you can subscribe to the plain tale only RSS feed, which is uh, kind of nice. And let's see, we're also on social media, what I like to call the Socialmeads. Yeah, we're on Facebook uh, where you can get us uh, at uh, Airline Pilot Guy. Uh, and uh, that also um, works nowhere else, except that's the webpage, <laughs> yeah. which would be airlinepilotguy.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, you can get us at, AP, at APG Crew on both a Facebook, I'm not, sorry, on tw- Twitter and Instagram. I'm not very good at this, am I? No, you're great. You're fantastic. <laughs> I, I couldn't have done it better. <laughs> there you go. And uh, also, we're on Slack. And uh, let's see if we can, I can tune in the, uh, the microphone from the uh, uh, area where Hillel is uh, standing by. Let's see. Uh, hang on. Hillel. Why is it that he's always taking a shower during this part of the show? Anyway. It's when he gets smelly. Yeah. Come over here. Come up. Yeah. Dry off a little bit with the towel. You're getting wet you're getting everything wet here okay here he is apg listeners please join us on our slack team slack is a communication coordination and sharing platform that works on your mobile laptop or browser on slack we share news and ideas we suggest episode and plain tales topics we plan events and meetups to get into the slack team please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com that's s-l-a-c-k Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. 
Thanks, Hillel. Now you can go back and do whatever you were you were doing before. Okay. Finish your ablutions. Well, he's, he's back in the shower apparently. Okay. Did he even wrap a towel around his waist? He did, well, um, I, I think he was having trouble finding the towel. See. All right, uh, and with that, it is now time for us. Okay, well, don't worry about it. We'll talk after the show. Gosh darn it, man! Such a very persistent, yes. Like those, like those contrails. Very persistent. Very persistent. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and talons, Douglas. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye, guys. La Vista, baby. Yeah. Good day. Fly.